noises. Hey, uh, so you know how this book has been a series of uh, very, very uh, dry analysis, followed by usually a really good payoff chapter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Welcome to, like, five straight chapters of pure, unadulterated communist cocaine, people. Yes. This is the good stuff. Yes, if you've you, earned this. If you... We've all earned this. If you do nothing, if this is the only episode you listen to, you're still going to get a good, good, good idea of what we're doing here, because this is mm-hmm. as good a synthesis of what we are talking about as anything. Yes, if you're introducing someone new to the show and somehow... You're not dragging them to chapter one, drag them here. If you are reading the book, because, again, I strongly encourage everyone to be reading along and to tell any friend to read. um, You know, I mean, if they want to read section by section like Nathan mentioned backwards, that's fine. Because if they stop after this section, they're a lot smarter. Exactly. If all you got was this part, if you want want spark notes for for, for capital... These next couple chapters. Yes. And uh, don't worry, after this book, it's going to be like these couple chapters every time. Yeah! Because yeah. Because most books are shorter and much more concise. This one was just so important, and it was yeah. the project that kind of organically made this podcast that we didn't yeah. know we were going to make. God, but man, we but we suffered, and this is our payoff. So, yes. without further ado, chapter 26. 26. Now we are starting into section 8, part 8. Mm-hmm. So, so-called primitive accumulation. <laughs> uh, chapter 26. The secret of primitive accumulation. Now, this is always fun. This makes it very, ha-ha, what are we yeah. doing here, guys? Yeah, ooh. So, uh, also, uh, as a change of pace, uh, I I will be driving for the majority of this. So you're going to hear a lot more of my voice in a, in a sonorous reading tone than you're used to. Get used to it. And, and normally when I drive, Nathan has some notes, and we go mostly by my notes. Right now, I'll admit... Um, I've been dealing with a lot of car stuff. Yes. And so I have no notes. No notes! But Going this is not the, the first time I've gone through this But this is also about chapters. the fourth time David's been through so, this. So it's a matter of my terrible memory how well it's jogged. Because I did read through these just a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah. I just didn't get any notes in because my <sighs> computer lost them and then I dealt with car shit. Notes are overrated. Yeah. But daddy's got notes. Here we go. We've seen how money is transformed into capital. How surplus value is made through capital and how capital is made from surplus value. But the accumulation of capital presupposes surplus value. Surplus value presupposes capitalist production. Capitalist production presupposes the availability of considerable masses of capital and labor power in the hands of commodity producers. The whole movement, therefore, seems to turn around in this never-ending cycle, which we can only get out of by assuming a primitive accumulation. Mm -hmm. The previous accumulation, as Adam Smith calls it, Uh, which precedes capitalist accumulation, an accumulation which is not the result of the capitalist mode of production, but its point of departure. Now, let's... It might have just a starting point for anyone who wants a a more plain English distillation of that. Yeah! Um, So let's let's take a look right there. I mean, and this is why you could definitely start here. If you go by these things, Adam Smith, all these liberal economists, they basically had to say... Well, something happened before it. There's a primitive accumulation, and it's just mystically just. Because this idea that, that everybody starts equal, everyone is created equal, as they, they say, these liberal, you know, ha, and um, it, never, it never makes sense, because why would you do the work for someone else if you don't have to? Yeah. 
Why, why instead of just doing your own stuff, would you punch in and deal with some boss bitching about you about how you're not flipping hamburgers fast enough, or about how your, you know, your code sucks, or about how your sales numbers aren't up, or about how your deliveries aren't there in time? And you know, why would you do any of that bullshit? Why are you begging people for a job? Why aren't you just going out and doing what you need to do? Something has to force you there. And so Adam Smith just went, well, it's primitive accumulation. It's it's fine. Like, he never examined how just that is because he just assumed the system was just. Oh, oh, no. But it got, it, there, don't, don't, don't sell Adam short. He, he came up with a, he came up with a tale for us. Um, but before we dive too much further, I do think this is one area, this is one of the few times that I think I'm going to use an off, out of book, out of text, um, uh, uh, concept to describe what Marx is describing because I I think the concept of primitive accumulation and and what it constituted may be one of the more I don't want to say contentious but it's definitely one of the most debated parts within you know communist thought socialist thought leftist thought in general mm-hmm. because there are multiple schools of this uh, Rosa Luxemburg famously d- diverged from Marx pretty distinctly. On what was primitive accumulation, where was it, when did it stop, and what was its historical significance. Yeah. Uh, and the 21st century has actually, you know, despite all the garbage that it has done, has done a pretty good job of also showing that this actually probably was a little more widespread than Marx even gave it credit for. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm also going to say I, I come from a school of, of thought myself, and then I know it floats around, and a lot of of uh, leftists and. Social, I, I, I guess, leftist socialist. We want to distinguish. Yeah, whatever. Social socialist, um, you know, is is that primitive accumulation? And I've I've mentioned this before. It's still really happening. Yes, it's a full time gig. It, yes. it it didn't like set things up and then wave your hand and walk away. It's it's always happening. You know, and that is a distinct and it's important to understand that that is a technical diversion from what Marx said because Marx says it's the point of departure. Is that primitive accumulation happened? And then capitalism kicked off, and after that point, we weren't really doing primitive accumulation anymore. So yeah, so that to, to to me, you know, primitive accumulation is like it's like we've talked about materialism versus idealism right now. Idealism yeah. is you know the idea comes a sound. You know, if we start that all men are created equal, then equality will bear out of it. If we you know start with just laws and and you know justice will come and and all that stuff and. Materialism is, we start with a material concept. Life presented me this bullshit. I'm going to figure out how this bullshit works. I'm going to pour my ideas into how to change that, and then it's going to make a new material condition, and it's going to work as a cycle. Yes. My idea of primitive accumulation, and the, and the other ones, you know, people that, that, that much more prominent than me think of, so I, I don't want to totally, like, adapt no, that there. No, no, no. Uh, I'm just not as schooled with some of these these other, you know, deeper... Disparate uh, schools. Yeah, disparate schools. Uh, to say, like, well, this one came from this one and point my finger. But basically, um, I, it's obviously come from somewhere when it got passed down to me. But basically, the idea is that it is it is the launching point. It has to be the launching point. But it doesn't go away when it's the launching point. It's not like we made a starting line and now you're going running a race. It's kind of like the tying back, like like the way, you know, materials change ideas, change materials, change ideas. Primitive accumulation creates capitalism, recycles in primitive accumulation, recycles in capitalism, recycles in primitive accumulation. And we'll get into colonialism here. We'll get into imperialism yep. down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into Lenin. And, and so you'll notice these cyclical concepts uh, it makes sense. And so I, I hate to try to tie it into a type of thinking like, oh, this is the type of thinking that explains this. So this is how everything yep. in here works because that's 
you know, I, I don't want to bridge it that way. No. And but it, cycles, you know, materialism is, un, is thinking in these cycles. Yeah. And um, somewhere in materialism, you can also happen to see these cycles, even if more usually what you see are contradictions. Exactly. And that's, it's an, again, it's important to say this is not, we you don't have to hold dogmatically to every single word Mark says to agree with what this book is. And no. This is just a good point of showing, yes, there are things that obviously have changed and are, are not necessarily 100% accurate, but it still He's is not over- quite Nostradamus. Exactly. But told- again, yeah, I mean, we, we've said this before. Marx is not some sage thing. It's not like Marx says these words, so they're right because Marx says it. That's idealist. That's yes. a deification. That's nonsense. Exactly. Um, it's, you know, we, we trust Marx because Marx is right. Most of the time. Most of the time. And so we trust Marx where he's right most <laughs> of the time. And sometimes we give a little more oomph to his words. because like, well, Marx said this because he, you know, he's been right. And yeah. that, that gives a little more vestige yeah. to say, but that doesn't mean it's right because Marx says it. That's just a common, a common way we handle social interaction. The fact of the matter is the stuff is right that Marx says that's right because it's right or it's not in spite of being Marx. And it still doesn't mean you don't, like, quote him and don't uh, communicate normally, but <laughs> he's exactly. right because he's right. And one of the, the, the all of that is said to say another way, in, a, in my opinion, a superior way of describing and, and better nomenclature for primitive accumulation is, and full credit to David Harvey, because I'm pretty sure he invented this phrase, and if he didn't, he definitely popularized it, is accumulation by dispossession. Uh, one extra word sounds a lot fancier though, so go go for it. But it, yeah. the whole con, it, and I think it makes it make more sense because it takes out this concept that it was primitive and it's at the beginning. It is a tactic that capitalism uses. It is a method of accumulation unique to capitalism, uh, but for the most part, and it it, it always comes by dispossessing someone of something. It is not earned. It is not right. It is not just. It is you got it. By, for lack of a better word, you got it by stealing it. You had to steal it. It was not yours. You appropriated it. Mm-hmm. So, and and that's distinct in capital. To make that clear, it's yeah. not like no one else in any other, you know, economic form or economic or any other Stole. base has stolen or dispossessed. It's that that dispossession. You you have power. You dispossess someone of their things based on that power. And what you dispossess isn't just stuff that you've stolen because you want it and have that power. It's a source of more power. It's a thing that you use to start the cycle. It's the it's the gasoline on the engine of capitalism. Right. I mean, you know, to put it in, in perspective of like a feudal thing, so you're looking at another base. Well, if you went out and you just stole someone else's army... Why the fuck would they fight for you? They they just leave, you know. Um, But if you steal someone else's stuff, now you can use that to make more stuff. It's a basis of accumulation. Yes. Uh, And so also, this is a point where I will pause and say, uh, we've got through a paragraph. So I told you, we're not getting all the way to 33 tonight. I told you, it's not happening. (laughs) That's definitely a separate episode. We're a paragraph in. Whether whether that behind the curtain is a separate or not is up for debate, but it's a separate episode. So. Moving on to the second paragraph. (laughs) This primitive accumulation plays approximately the same role in political economy as original sin does in theology. Adam bit the apple, and thereupon sin fell on the human race. Its origin is supposed to be explained when it is told as an anecdote about the past. Long, long ago, there were two sorts of people. One, the diligent, intelligent, and above all, frugal elite. And the other, lazy rascals, spending their substance and more in riotous living. This is literally 
Adam Smith's theory of previous accumulation. Yeah. Is, well, some people just wanted to work hard and others were lazy, so they made more money and the other people decided, with no force, no, and just decided, you know, it'd be way better if I just worked for that guy and had him pay me instead of doing the same amount of work but doing it for myself that's literally the line of logic here yeah and again i mean this is and this is how you tell that no one who's read adam smith has read, has adam, read smith. adam smith but they all parrot these ideas because there's this idea that like you know the self-made man they earn their wealth they deserve it and well why do they deserve it even adam smith if you actually read him says well no i mean this was passed down someone maybe a thousand generations ago quote unquote deserved it per adam smith the hell does that have to do with you um, and on top of that, you know, the entire basis of that, these people wanted to be lazy and work for someone else. The question isn't who's doing more work, because obviously if you're working no. for someone else, you're doing more work. It's that being in charge is automatically extra work. It's automatically, it's the hard work that these lazy people don't want to do. No one wants to have to make decisions and do things their way. No one wants to have to eat what they want and produce what they see fit and plan according to their own needs. No one wants to have to do that. They want to be handed these things and let the hard workers do all the hard work of planning and they just want to do the easy grunt work that happens to be a thousand times harder and destroy your body. Yeah. You know, and th- and that's the way, I mean, they still think. They still think, you know, managers yeah. do the hard work. CEOs do the hard work. They'll tell you how, like, the CEOs work, like, 80 hours a week, but, like, 60 of those 80 hours are jacking off, yeah. you know, in, in fucking... In 80, yeah. A meeting to plan the meeting about the meeting, guys. Right, and that that's, even meetings are somewhat somewhat work, even if pretty easy. That's giving them a lot of credit. A lot of that is just schmoozing clients <sighs> and kicking back drinks and shit like that, you and know? And so even if you remove that, uh, if these chapters are anything... It is a glorious, systematic destruction, piece by piece, of this concept that, well, someone somewhere must have worked hard to earn it. It can't just all be lies and stealing and violence. No. Nope. Nope. We're going to go back to the beginning of human history, essentially. (laughs) Right. The beginning of all of this and show that every step of the way it got stolen. Every step. So. And again, it still does. It, oh, and again, that's what we're saying is that it constantly does. Constantly. So in themselves, money and commodities are no more capital than the means of production and subsistence are. They need to be transformed into capital. But this transformation can only itself take place under particular circumstances, which meet together at this point. The confrontation of and the contact between two very different kinds of commodity owners. On the one hand, the owners of money, means of production, means of subsistence, who are eager to valorize the sum of the values they have appropriated by buying the labor power of others. On the other hand, free workers, the sellers of their own labor power, and therefore the sellers of labor. Free workers in the double sense that they neither form part of the means of production themselves, as would be the case with slaves, (laughs) serfs, or etc., nor do they own the means of production, as would be the case with self-employed peasant proprietors. Free workers, therefore, are free from, unencumbered by, any means of production of their own. Marx is getting real sassy here, oh, guys, yeah, and it's yeah. good. Uh, with the polarization of the commodity market into these two classes, the fundamental conditions of capitalist production are present. We have our base. We have our stew. Let's get a stirring. The capital relation presupposes a complete separation between workers and the ownership of the conditions for the realization of their labor. As soon as capitalist production stands on its own feet, it not only maintains this separation, but reproduces it on a constantly extending scale. 
The process, therefore, which creates the capital relation can be nothing other than the process which divorces the worker from the ownership and conditions of his own labor. It is baked in. It has to be there. Yes. And again, this is on a class level. This doesn't mean like you as an individual can't be a carpenter and then go home and build something small for yourself with wood. It's just if you had the means of production to turn that into self-sufficiency, you just would. I but mean, where you did start you get, your own business. Yeah, yeah. And where did you get the wood? And did yeah. you go by the wood? If I go by the wood from the Home Depot and then make something out of wood, I did. I still don't own the means of production. I didn't get the wood. Right, right. What, what that wood is, is that's the means of subsistence the capital is giving you that you've turned into something that you could squeeze a little more out of with your own skill. You know, that's yeah. so, yeah. The economic structure of capitalist society has grown out of the economic structure of feudal society. The dissolution of the latter set free the elements of the former. Again, mm-hmm. everything spur, and this is very heavily in the dialectic. Everything comes from something. Everything comes out of you. You have a system. That system is surpassed by another system. It's surpassed by another system. Then they, they, their contradictions form whatever the new system is going to be. Yes. Um, so, moving on. Hence, the historical movement, which changes the producers into wage laborers, appears on the one hand as their emancipation from serfdom and from the fetters of the guilds. And it is this aspect of the movement which alone exists for the bourgeois historians. Again, there every time you have a new system like this, there is going to be some level of, of betterment for at least some group of that people. That's why it happens. And, and they're going to be the ones that write the history, so they'll tell you how everything got better. Yes. Never mind that the lowest of the low class, it stays the same. Or, or gets, gets worse. worse. Or, or you turn it into something that's destroying the entire earth. Which is on the next sentence. But on the other hand, these newly freed men become sellers of themselves only after they've been robbed of all their own means of production and all the guarantees of existence afforded by the old feudal arrangements. And this kind of history, the history of their expropriation, is written in the annals of mankind in the letters of blood and fire. Oh, we are getting <laughs> we are getting good on it. Um, it is at this point that I want to pause because that last sentence, uh, there is a good modern parallel to it. So when you talk about feudal arrangements, so the guarantees of existence afforded by the old feudal arrangements, that's referring to this that concept that it in feudalism, were, were, did you have agency? Were you free? Could you do whatever you wanted? No. But as part of this kind of arrangement, you were kept alive. You were you were guaranteed to subsist. You wouldn't have to think about where would that come from. This is something they often that that really good white supremacists will bring up about slavery all the time. Well, no, yeah. but they were taking. They didn't kill them all. They were <laughs> allowed to live and and be on the be on the plantation. That how benevolent. Yeah. Um, there, there are modern parallels of that. And the most, the, the most recent one that I can think of would be, um, the iron rice bowl out of China. Um, are you familiar with the concept? No. Cool. Um, so the, the iron rice bowl was the equivalent of guaranteed employment within okay. China. The concept that a state owned agency or a government position within, within the Chinese communist party um, you were guaranteed a certain subsistence. You were, okay. you could not be fired. You could not lose your job. Um, and this is one of those great arguments that you get all the time um, when you have, you know, especially libertarians and and right wing economists arguing against it. They say, well, they made them all lazy and they they weren't they weren't producing, and that's why their economy couldn't grow. Um, now again, never mind the fact that this gave a majority of the population steady, consistent employment, which. 
does that outweigh economic expansion at all costs? Probably. But yeah, I mean, we talked about how how capital is obsessed with growth, growth, yes. growth, 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 growth. And it's not like socialists didn't care about growth. I no. mean, look at the Soviet Union boom yes. in the twenties when we were having a depression. Yes. But so you it's s- not the central focus. So one of the big adjustments that was happening with and one of the again you you see this when people critique modern China. This is a a a a left. If you want to punch left for China, um, they, in the late 90s, early 2000s, kind of blew up that concept. Um, they, in the process, in, in order to make it more streamlined, more efficient, uh, get more productivity, um, they, they eliminated this concept of guaranteed employment from a large number of people to create a wage labor force because that was part of what that reform was there for. Now, again, you know, He's yeah he's, he's he's rolled that a lot of that he's he's cut poverty like crazy he's built housing yes and, and they're doing it through different means yeah but that is a very very um, it's an evolving recent example strategy. and again a lot of it is geez big pushes to reduce corruption so again when you're when you're getting rid of that part of it yeah but is that creating more again what what is the biggest critique of the Soviet Union's version of one of the one of the biggest critique bureaucracy bureaucracy is bad sure. the less bureaucracy the better you need sure. to be able to directly influence stuff so it, it's just a matter of again as systems Cuba evolve solved pretty good but yeah huh <laughs> I said in Cuba solved that pretty good no exactly but as this is and I guess the whole point of that was as well. systems evolve there are going to be good parts of the old system yeah. that are going to get that are going to get their, their contradictions are going to come into play. So you've got the contradictions of guaranteed employment versus uh, is this creating corruption? They're going to resolve themselves in some way, and you're going to get a new system. Sure. That happened in feudalism. It happened in so, and it's happening now in in China specifically. Yeah. They're they're they are having to synthesize a new system to meet their material conditions. I would like to know more about some of that stuff with China, but I know they're drastically reducing. Poverty. They are no no no, and that's the thing. And they're they moving are. a lot of housing out to the countryside without destroying like yes with with, with reforestation. And this was now. a big that was a big part of it, which is people, actually taking some of the peasants. Out of poverty too, because exactly. now they're by civilization, and that was a big part during two thousand, early two thousands. That was a critique of, oh well, they're destroying, their, they're getting rid of the things that made socialism good. Uh, well, well, we don't even need socialism if they're just going to tear it up. No, they were doing something different. They looked at the conditions, realized this wasn't working anymore, and adapted, and that created a new system. So again, they're talking back to the text. So Marx is again talking about. Were there positive things that came out of 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 the switch from feudalism to capitalism? Absolutely. Did some people still get absolutely screwed? Uh-huh. It's it's more nuanced than just capitalism is wholly bad for... No, it, everything... You need to look at what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the industrial capitalists, these new potentates, had on their part not only to displace the guild masters, but also the feudal lords, who were in possession of the sources of wealth. And we know that those industrial capitalists need that. In this respect, the rise of industrial capitalists appears as the fruit of a victorious struggle both against feudal power and its disgusting prerogatives, and against the guilds and the fetters by which the latter restricted the free development of production and the free exploitation of man by man. It just never stops. He's so good. <laughs> That's the freedom that the liberals always want. And, and to the very, getting to the end of chapter 26, the history of this expropriation assumes different aspects in different countries and runs through its various phases in different orders of succession at different historical epochs. Lean England, which we therefore take as our example, has it the classic form. Again, this is that that last yeah. sentence is unnecessary. It's again, it's, it was England the only place that this happened? No, yeah. we have so many examples since then of ways that it happened in very similar phases 
but with different triggers, different different outcomes. Yeah. But the point is, is that this is a flexible system. It's not going to well. First, the, you're going to kill the feudal lords, and then you're going to create a factory, and then you put three factories together, and you get a hotel and Monopoly. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think that's how it works. I'm not sure, but uh, but it's not it's not that easy. Um, so moving on to chapter 27. Yeah. This is going to be so that's Mark setting up a hey. Only way to get there is by stealing. So, hey, how did they historically do that? What does that look like? And we are going to take a jaunty stroll through basically only England and uh, and and the Western Europe because at this point that was the only part of the world that had gone through this phase completely. So, while some of this is dated, we will try and throw in some more recent references if we can. But this is a pretty good example. But, I mean, of what well, that's, happened. that's an important thing. I mean, there's there's an issue with history being too Western chauvinistic. But considering the effects of colonialism and imperialism and how they've terrorized the world or changed the world, whatever nicer mean word you want to put on those horrors, uh, the fact of the matter is, is everywhere in the world is affected by that. And so it's better to decolonize and tell their own history of these places. We actually need more yeah. of that. But when you're understanding the, the large systems at play, what socialism is going to resolve, what we're looking at in the world now, we're, we're looking at the products of imperialism. So we're looking at the products of these changes in, in Europe. The Western chauvinism has kind of turned the, the history told by Western chauvinism into the central history of the world. Yeah. It's kind of this weird, ironic loop. It's and it, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't change that we have to learn the histories yeah. better yes. of the colonized lands as a step in decolonization, but it, it makes the, the Western chauvinistic history more important to the theory here. It does. And in this particular case, we're reading a book. We're reading historical work. The point of yeah. this is to deconstruct capital. Marx deconstructed Western Europe at the time. So yeah. we're going off of that. We are not the... You know, not negating anyone else's version of history or their, their own telling of their own history, especially. Um, so... This particular uh, chapter is the expropriation of the agricultural population of the land. So, step one to creating a capitalist. Kick people off of their uh, uh, own means of subsistence. So, the prelude to the revolution that laid the foundation of the capitalist mode of production was played out in the last third of the 15th century and the first few decades of the 16th. A mass of quote-unquote free and unattached proletarians were hurled onto the labor market by the dissolution of bands of feudal retainers. Uh, feudal retainers, uh, the servants, people that lived in the house of the Lord and, and tared to his, uh, you know, butlering and all the various other things that were happening that you needed to tend to for, for feudalism. Yay. Yay. Um, and who, as James Stewart uh, correctly remarked, uh, everywhere uselessly filled house and castle. So there were a <laughs> bunch of them. More importantly, there were more of them than you could do anything with. So although the royal power itself, a product of bourgeois development, forcibly hastened the dissolution of these retainers, in its striving for absolute sovereignty, so for in order to shift from you know feudalism to a, a monarchy straight down kind of system, um, it was by no means the sole cause of it. It was rather that the great feudal lords, in their defiant opposition to king and parliament, created an incomparably larger proletariat by forcibly driving the peasantry from the land to which the latter had the same feudal title as the lords themselves. There's a very, very important part of this, and mm-hmm. it's that... At the beginning, it was rather that the great feudal lords, in defiant opposition to the king and parliament, this was illegal. What they did to get this to the first gen, boom, step one, capitalism. 
they illegally kicked people off of their lands. They, the poor, they, yeah, the tech completely poor against against regul against the rules of law that are supposed to to, to regulate this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They said, "F you, middle fingers off. We're gonna take it," and and that's how this started. So step one. Illegally kicked everybody off of their land. So. And you want to talk about things that are still happening with primitive accumulation? I'm immediately just attacking the poor to bring wealth to this, and this is essentially a middle class. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. right, and you can see that in the modern time. This is the primitive accumulation always still happening. Okay, mm-hmm. and there's two there's two levels of this that that kind of go on at the same time. Uh, one is is the normal you know middle class, the people that that follow with the you know, the government says, and, and punch down. You can always get people to punch down as long as they're getting something out of it. So, you know, you get the people that don't care if, you know, their health care is going downhill because they'll just bitch about their health care separately and be separate in their head. And they don't care that, that we're burning down the entire global south because they're used to not thinking about it and told it's all their fault and we're humanitarians. Uh, but they do care about like a five hundred or thousand dollar bit back on their tax return, and they're happy to starve the poor and watch the millionaires that that they're jealous of get another million dollars they don't deserve in the taxes because they're getting their thousand, they're getting theirs, uh-huh. you know. And and so this is kind of the same thing, except you're not doing it through policy that the millionaires told you. While the million millionaires get their million, you're just illegally like kicking the poor over and taking their food stamps right out of their pocket. Yep. And those food stamps are a lot more productive. They're setting an entire market. Um, you also see, and this is again, you know, where, where white supremacy is a thing, and we have to be very conscious of it and battle it directly. Okay, All the time, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, we want a better life for ourselves, and, and we're not going to have a revolution unless we're fighting for a better life for ourselves. What what is going to motivate that? But we can't have a revolution that just takes America and then gives us all the things we want, and doesn't pay the reparations to the global south, doesn't no. radically change uh, how we live our lives. Where we're, yeah, I mean, sure, working less, but we're still working 30 hours. We're still um, paying things back. We're still being more economic. We're still giving the land wholly and truly and sovereignly, the entire land, not just little treaty chunks that we'll stomp over later, the actual land and government back to indigenous people. Because as long as you're not doing that, you know, the, the cops that keep us safe, that are normally there for us to, you know, maybe if we're a little more conscious, bitch about shooting black people. But, you know, usually we just tend to think about as bitch about pulling over for tickets and then, you know, say, uh, think that, oh, they protect us and they're cool in TV shows. You know, they're they're terrorizing the the poor. They're terrorizing black and indigenous people and, and all people of color, but especially black and indigenous people. And in order for, for our own gain, you also see the reaction anytime, you know, Nathan talked about anytime you get to this full employment. Well, who do we turn on? Because we know somebody's got to be there coming to get our jobs. Someone's got to be there. So we turn on the immigrants. You know, that is what fascism and fascism, it, fascism is this kind of reaction we, when the capitalism already exists, you know, it's 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 throwing this kind of reaction, these these uh, feudal lords kicking the peasants off the land into capitalism, you know. And so, I mean, you see fascism isn't like a bunch of poor people, you know, rising up out of the bigotry. And it's very, very corporate funded and corporate friendly. But it's not really the corporate people. They already got their power. It's the middle class people that are, are seeing this middle class disappear. And they're not really getting to become the new ruling class. And they're mad and they're reacting through it. And they can't overthrow their masters. Or if they could, they would have to have a much more humble, realistic theory and ideology that, that paints them not so perfectly. Yeah. So what they do is they, they, they hug their white supremacy close to the vest. They hug their hate of the poor and the disabled close to their vest. And they punch down 
violently to usurp the power. Fascism is very much this pattern of of the feudal lords kicking off the peasants when it's already happening in capitalism. And that's why you see these um, the the Nazi rallies with the torches and stuff are are you know middle class white kids in polo t shirts and stuff. Yeah. The Proud Boys are are you know middle class people these the, these reddit forums they're in you know they're they're the big youtube video game things well who has time to youtube video games well middle class white kids do covington kids that dis- the, or whatever they are that decide oh yeah the, covington catholic uh, kids that are mocking indigenous people who are protesting and and the indigenous people and let's be very clear that that indigenous person came forward to protest against them so don't take his agency away and try to no. play this victim it, this idea that you have to be the victim for a protest to be just is the no. saddest thing ever or that you know he's not the victim of white supremacy right. you know just because he's he came forward with the protest himself yeah. but he came up and was protesting them because he saw them attacking black Jews yeah. and then they just group mocked him in the most white supremacist shitty way possible you know, I mean, these are the people that are fascists. Yes. You know, and the fascist language is very much, they know there's some kind of ruling class that they can never defeat, but they don't want to look at the ideology that's always put them in power as what it is. So they have to find a scapegoat. And that's where, you know, again, I, I don't like the concept of conspiracy because then no. it chops up like, oh, hey, you know, realizing that the CIA is, is a bunch of bullshit that's, you know, destroying people's lives uh, makes you the same as, you know, tinfoil hat wearing guys that, that tell you that, you know, gay frogs blood conspiracies. But nonetheless, they have to have an outlet, and obviously, it's usually a racial outlet because they're they're a product of white supremacy. It's usually a very sexist outlet. So it's you know these stupid feminists are destroying the world. These trans people are destroying the world. The Jews are destroying the world. The black people are destroying the world. These Mexican immigrants coming across are destroying the world. We have to we have to stop them with the wall. These migrant caravans. That's it's very much fascism. That is a violent punching down reaction because these people are becoming disenfranchised themselves and they want that power that they feel like they deserved and they're not punching up for it they will bitch about punching up they'll say they're not partisan they'll critique the ruling class you know in the same way maybe you do and they'll just cut the substance out that way the ruling class can be anybody Mm -hmm. you know and so then it's it's and and when you see changes in culture that they can point to and try to blame on, like, you know, the ruling class isn't totally white now. It's still mostly white, but it's not totally white. So now it's, you know, it's minorities and equality and all these things causing it. And that lets them fuel and back people and makes you think their arguments are earnest. But they're just scrambling to avoid looking at the real ruling class so they don't have to look at themselves. And they're really not going to react on the ruling class oppressing them. They're going to react to the people they've already been oppressing so that they can get theirs. Yep. And so, again, this is, to, to tie us back, this is, at the beginning of all of this, the government was not actively involved in enforcing capitalism. This is the first, at the very beginning, the, the ruling party is, is concerned about status quo, as it almost always is. The, the, the yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in, in exactly. the next Exactly. It's almost always, in, it, it is protect what is now, because that's what's keeping us power. But... Very, very quickly, that stopped being the case. And this is another fun uh, fun thing that you see is, is basically the concept that all... It, it's so funny that it, it's almost the exact opposite of what you would what you think if you just listen to common discourse of, well, the government is, you know, more government is going to be oppressing us and it's going to be causing, you know, socialism and, and we need less government so that we can have, be more free and all that. Uh, 
from this moment on, and this moment being 1489, the government does nothing, and government, I'm talking about government in general, across the board, every government, slowly but surely aligns itself with capitalist interests and then becomes another de facto enforcer of capitalism. So, Legislation shrunk in the face of this immense change, the overthrow of feudalism into ca capitalism. Mm -hmm. It did not yet stand at the high level of civilization where the wealth of the nation, i.e. the formation of capital and the reckless exploitation of the impo and impoverishment of the masses, figures as the ultimate rule of all statecraft. An act of Henry the Seventh, 1489, forbade the destruction of houses of husbandry possessing 20 acres of land. By another act of Henry VIII, this law was renewed. It recites, among other things, that many farms and large flocks of cattle, especially of sheep, are concentrated in the hands of a few men, whereby the rent of the land has much risen and tillage has fallen off. Churches and houses have been pulled down, and the marvelous number of people have been deprived of the means wherewith to maintain themselves and their families. The act, therefore, ordains the rebuilding of the decayed farmsteads and fixes a proportion of corn, land, and pasture land. The same act recites that some owners possess 24,000 sheep and limits the number to be owned to 2,000. The cr Guys, I hate to break it to you. Uh, uh, 1489. That, that socialism. We, we, we did it, guys. We got there. We got well, there. I'm not going to give Henry 1489. I'm not giving Henry We did it! Woo! Jesus Christ. Yeah, baby. I know you're um, joking, let's but put I'm it this way. You. Henry VIII is definitely more socialist than any American government in the last 50 years. Okay, and he's still Henry the fucking. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, again, the concept that this is all new. No, no, no. They recognize it was recognized. This is again, early on there's conflict. This is conflict and, and they're they fighting back. Yeah, and they and they wanted their order because they knew these yes. people because here's the thing is capitalism will reinforce existing power. That's exactly. that's the point of it. But it wants a, a government will reinforce existing yeah, power. Right, right, right. But they they want they want a slightly bigger pool and then to shrink it back down is what yes. they do. They just it's like it mushrooms and then re-shrinks back to, a, back to a, a, a pyramid almost, okay? Yep. And so the people that were going to be in that mushroom really wanted the capitalism. But the people that were already on top of that pyramid with the, with the feudal pyramid didn't want that. So this is Henry VIII protecting his own interests. But, go, you know, even Henry VIII protecting his interests is going, this is unjust bullshit. This ain't happening. No. The cries of the people and legislation directed for 150 years after Henry VII against expropriation of the small farmer and peasants Oh, we're both equally fruitless. Hmm. Capitalism is nothing if not an untold, just churning murder machine. Yeah, and so, this and this is to tell you too. Again, reinforces people that start screaming dictator. Oh my god! Okay, yeah. dictators aren't these lone people with rogue ideas that just command out of fear, and and that alone, just immediately there, should just decompose the entire like Kim Jong Un's a super dictator, and all the communists were dictators, and Stalin was a dictator. There's no way to rule like that. You can't rule like a movie mafia. Even real life mafias didn't rule like the movie mafias. And again, you know? go fa fascists are the same way. Most yeah. fascists, they don't rule. They have wide support, and the, yes. the way they get wide support, again, is is a grieved middle-class reaction, and especially, and this is why they have to, have to attack marginalized groups, is especially bigotry against marginalized groups. It was no accident that Hitler, when he wanted to turn people on communism, which, again, was ideologically against him, so yep. the people supporting were already going to be against communism, yep. uh, he screamed, screamed Judeo-Bolshevik. You know, it's the Jews. It's the Because Jews had been hated in Europe 
for centuries, centuries upon centuries. You know, bigotry from the the um, Catholic Church and bigotry from individual people and bigotry yeah. when they were but Jews, Jews because of their culture kosher rules were affected by the bubonic plague less than others, obviously still very much affected. Yeah, but, but, but it looked like they were doing others. some secret Jew magic to keep themselves right, safe. Right, right, and there was already bigotry against them, so that became the first big conspiracy to, mm-hmm. to put the neg- negative light type conspiracy. And and ever since then, it took like the, the bigotry in Europe and launched it a thousand times against Jews. That's why that's why Nazis were against Jews, and you didn't hear them you know, talk about like Indian people. They certainly yeah. were racist against Indian people, but that wasn't like the fervent bigotry in Europe. Europe, you know, Hitler didn't didn't just point at the group he felt like on a personal level. Okay, this was the wide mass hatred. You know, the fact that I, the fact that they started with concentration camps, which of course were very evil and deadly, but they weren't really like death camps until yeah. like the last two years of the Civil War, was because it was building up this this bigoted fervor and fervor and fervor that progressed. Not because Hitler just woke up one day with a hair in his ass and went, "We're not killing them fast enough." No. You know, I mean, it's you have to understand. There's no such thing as as a dictator in the sense. There, there's a formal dictator, there's a real such thing as a dictator, yes. where you know they can have enough mass support to override popular support or to just gain it by force and and just you know get people around them with propaganda. But there can't be someone who is just completely off on their own, off their rocker. No, anyone would, would you know follow them. Tells everybody to get the same haircut and sew their big toe to their forehead, and you know, in in the DPRK is you know, there's no way there's that kind of dictator. No. It just can't happen. They even if they don't have true popular support, like say Trump doesn't, they still have to have wide support. You know, they have, they have to have wide support where the support plus their power is enough to maintain it. And they have to have opposition that, that you know, doesn't just outnumber them, but, but isn't united in outnumbering, is dissipated in some way. And, and that's all a dictator is. And if, and if you'll notice, almost always when you try and delegitimize a quote-unquote dictator, any, anyone who has obviously wide popular support, uh, anytime you're looking for cult of personality... Yeah. Assume that there is something that they are trying to to dilute, yeah. um, because that, that it almost always it's the same. It, you and see, again, it, that, that that supposed cult of personality and usually propaganda garbage, something they're doing for their people. Yes. But it can be writing on you know something cultural that that in the area. And usually, again, you're going to be in a oppressing class of white supremacist yeah. of some kind if you have this. But it can be you know playing on bigotry or, or something like that. But it's not going to be on nothing. No. And if you're you're in an oppressed nation, it's very, very, very unlikely to be on uh, grievances of holding existing power and and you know playing on some sort of bigotry and when they've never been the powerful group holding down marginalized classes. That makes no sense. None. So moving on from Henry oh, VIII, we... yeah, but that was my point. Is Henry VIII? Oh yeah, no, no, no. Obviously, couldn't enforce this because they didn't have enough white. Yeah, Henry VIII. We didn't like the Jews. This podcast stands with Israel. Yep, we got it okay. all. Got them all. Got them all. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna smack the living shit out of you. I was waiting. I was waiting to see if I could sneak that one in there. Waiting to see if I could sneak that I'm one in sneak, there. That's just there are gonna be people. I know. I know. I know. Ninety nine percent of people will catch that. Yeah, sarcasm. yeah, yeah. But you just said it so damn fast. I know it was good. They're and, gonna think like a third of that is sarcasm and not two thirds. Anti-Semitism is not is anti-Zionism. Bad. They are different things. God damn it. Yes, and and we <sighs> love Jews and we, we yes. hate Israel. There's a, it's, it's possible, guys. And it's Nathan's possible. an asshole. I am also an asshole. It is it is my thing. It's my shit. <laughs> 
The, so we skip right over that whole Cromwell dude uh, because he basically yeah, just no. you know, yeah he yeah mm-hmm. um, the process of forcible expropriation of the people received a new and terrible impulse in the 16th century from but up but up the Reformation and the consequent <laughs> colossal spoliation of church property. The Catholic Church was at the time of the Reformation the feudal proprietor of a great part of the soil of England. The dissolution of the monasteries, etc., hurled their inmates into the proletariat. The estates of the church were to a large extent given away to rapacious royal favorites. Hey guys, another point where did those royal favorites do anything to earn those new no. found? No, no, they did not. And then they've handed it down over generations, and you just assume at some point they worked hard for it, yeah. and they didn't. And remember, it's not a total turnover. You know, these guys were trying to to hold their unique power because they knew this would balloon out, you know, dissipate their power and split it up more, and then it had to be re-centralized, hoping them. But it's not like the people who were these feudal lords, or no, well, not feudal lords, obviously they were the ones dissipating, but like the kings and queens and royal families, It's it's not like they suddenly weren't, rich and part of this, you know, especially rich part of this ruling class anyway. And they, they yep. kept this power anyway. They just didn't want to have to work as hard or have so much insecurity keeping the power. Exactly. So after the restoration of the Stuarts, the landed proprietors carried out by legal means an act of usurpation, sorry, la, the which was effected everywhere on the continent without any legal formality. They abolished the feudal tenure of land, i.e. they got rid of all its obligations to the state, indemnified the state by imposing taxes on the peasantry and the rest of the people, established for themselves the rights of the modern private property and estates to which they had only a feudal title, and finally passed those laws of settlement which had the same effect on the English agricultural laborer as the edict of the Tartar Boris Godunov had on the Russian peasantry. Basically, they just said unilaterally, uh, no, property is uh, private now, we can own it, and by the way, we own it. Um, <laughs> is there a rule that says that? Nah, nah, we just did. Uh, the Glorious Revolution, glorious, oh, it's a quotation marks, guys. It brought into power, along with William of Orange, the landed and capitalist profit grubbers. They inaugurated the new era by practicing on a colossal scale thefts of state lands which had hitherto been managed more modestly. These estates were given away, sold at ridiculous prices, or even annexed to private estates by direct seizure. Again, they stole it. Yeah, and again, neoliberalism is liberalism. This was stole it. privatization yes. of... Hi, guys. Feudal lands. Yeah, we privatized the feudal lands. What does yeah. that mean? Get out. Yeah, oh, this okay. Is, this is feudal Reagan slash Clinton slash Bush slash Obama uh-huh. slash Same Trump. Thing. Same thing. <laughs> the crown lands thus fraudulently appropriated together with the stolen church estates, insofar as these were not lost again during the revolution, form the basis of the present princely domains of the English oligarchy. So, guys, for context... When Marx was writing this, David, eight, late 1800, late 1860? 1870, 1866, okay. something like that, yeah. This I had the year. forms the basis of the... Really pr- so from 18... So from 15... Where are we at? So 1750 to 1850. So 100 years. Yeah. 100 years. 200 years after these initial thefts. That is the basis of the current English oligarchy. That sh- This stuff all stemmed... From what was unilaterally acknowledged to be pure theft for no other reason. It's one class determining that they get the stuff now. They didn't do anything for it. They just sat on it. So again, when people get mad and say, well, you can't tax our wealth. You didn't earn it. (laughs) You fucking didn't earn it. It didn't come to you. It, It didn't work that way. The bourgeois capitalists favored the operation 
of this overthrow with the intention, among other things, of converting the land into merely a commercial commodity, mm. extending the area of large-scale agriculture production, and increasing the supply of free and rightless proletarians driven from their land. So again, capitalists are benefiting threefold on this. They clear out the land, so hey, I can build a factory on this land now. Now yes. that all these people are gone, I can build things here. And I need people to work there. Hey, people that I kicked off the land, come work for me now. That's right. Like, good lord, people. Apart from this, the new landed aristocracy was the natural ally of the new bankocracy, which is, I don't know how I missed that the first time through, but man, bankocracy <laughs> is a kick-ass word. It's its very, yeah, it's, there's there's no question of, of how well that word Oh, plays. and it keeps, it carries through. A newly hatched high finance and the large manufacturers at that time dependent on protective duties. Again, no, the free market, fuck you, the free market, no, these people only survived <laughs> because you had laws that said they were allowed to. The English bourgeoisie acted quite as wisely in its own interest as the Swedish burghers, who did the opposite, hand in hand with the bulwark of their economic strength, the peasantry. They helped the kings in their forcible resumption of crown lands from the oligarchy in the year 1604 and later under Charles X. Yeah, Sweden. Swedish burghers as in, like, you know, people from Sweden who... Uh, were from the the burgs or the cities, yeah. not not like a, a very delicious variation. No, of yes, Swedish no, meatball. not Swedish hamburger. No, yeah. no, the Swedish chef is not involved here. Her degree. Uh, <laughs> the eighteenth century. We're moving, skipping forward. Eighteenth century, however, did not yet recognize as fully as the nineteenth the identity between the wealth of the nation and the poverty of the people. That is a really powerful line. The, there is a difference between the wealth of a nation and the poverty of its people. Mm -hmm. Hence the very vigorous polemics in economic literature of that time on enclosure of the commons. Because the commons, if they were privatized, would lead to this expansion of overall wealth of the nation. If you want to use it in a term that people are more familiar with, the GDP. It's going through the roof. We've, we've, we've privatized this and look at the growth we had. Yeah, but where was that growth? Was it with the people? Are the people better off? Or are five guys hoarding all of that? Yeah. It, it, again, and there this... is a distinction between your nation being powerful and wealthy and your people being powerful and wealthy. Yeah, and we, we see this today. You know, where's your GDP check? Did you get yeah. your GDP bonus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where is it? I didn't get one. I, I they, they didn't kick one back to me. The market's doing great, I hear. Somehow, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. mean, my 401k exists in it. Yeah, but... I mean, my house, my house was beautiful last year, had like a thousand square feet, and then we just added that GDP extension yeah, to it. Yeah, got that good GDP Yeah, bar. and I've, I get to drive that new GDP car I got. Uh-huh. Just great. Just uh -huh. real good. Real good. It, it, again, it is very, very easy to point, well, but we make more money now, so life is better. Not if, again, this, and this is, we're getting to the heart of, of Marx, of the heart of Marxism, is in pure capitalism if it is allowed to continue, if it's allowed to live in its little bubble that it wants to. And this is what Marx had proved through... He's, we're now getting into really historical, obvious things. But we, did, we spent the last six months doing this logically for a reason. It's because we know the underpinnings of what he's saying is true. And if this was allowed to exist in the fairy bubble that they keep saying they want, all that would happen is you would take your taffy and stretch it mm -hmm. where there are two poles. There is wealth and power and opulence at one end and there is degradation and misery and toil and poverty at the other end and there's nothing in between and the more pure you get to it the closer you get to that that absolute zero of pure neoliberal reagan and thatcher just orgasm the worse it gets for everyone at the bottom and the better it gets for everyone at the top mm -hmm. and that that it's slowly 
you're just slowly seeing it over history as he goes through these. And and the only times it's changed is when people violently push back, mm-hmm. a lot of them under the guidance of Marx. And as you see, the ruling class has just kicked us right back down. Right they back don't down. they don't stop fighting Constantly. it. No. Um, I mean, revolution doesn't doesn't end, and certainly we haven't had a full turnover revolution, just just maybe a soiled one that we hopefully can start stuff growing on yes. here in the United States. Uh, but in other countries, you know, there's revolutions that have defended themselves extremely well. You know, I mean, Cuba, China, Venezuela is really going to have to start defending itself right now yeah. because they are putting troops on the Colombian border without saying shit no. and then going, oh my God, they're blocking the humanitarian aid highways. And it's like, no, those who are the troops are going to march down. Oh, you think the blocking the highways is going to stop them? No, but if no. they can only send helicopters, they're a little weaker and it's not the only fucking thing Venezuela well as doing. <laughs> so, uh, there are a lot of things during these uh, during these chapters where, where Marx uses a contemporary example of what's going on to really highlight it. Mm-hmm. We're never going to go through all of them because, again, that's the whole point of this, is that if you want to read all of them, go. But there are a couple that I think are worth pointing out, and the first one is our good friend, the Duchess of Sutherland. Um, the Duchess of Sutherland, uh, the, the prelude to this, the, the thing you need to know about her, is she... Um, had Harriet Beecher Stowe at her house. She was entertaining Harriet Beecher Stowe, authoress of Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, and she was uh, very, very, very eager to impress upon Miss Beecher Stowe her sympathy for, and everything I'm saying here is quoted verbatim, uh, sympathy for the Negro slave of the American Republic. Um... So she was very intent on making sure Harriet Beecher Stowe knew that she she sympathized with that men, with uh, with the slave struggle. So let's hear what she did. Uh... They're called the clearings, if that gives you any idea what the Duchess of Sutherland did. Uh, This person, who had been well instructed in her economics, resolved, when she succeeded to the headship of her clan, to undertake a a radical economic cure and to turn the whole county of Sutherland, the population of which had already been reduced to 15,000 people by similar cullings, into a sheepwalk. She wanted to take this whole county and basically say, I would like my sheep to farm here. She wanted to Clive and Bundy, the entire county of Sutherland. Uh, Between 1814 and 1820, those 15,000 inhabitants, which constituted roughly 3,000 families, were systematically hunted and rooted out. Their villages were destroyed and burnt. Their fields turned to pasturage. Again, the woman who had Harriet Beecher Stowe over and was like, I am so against slavery, Harriet. I am not into this. Uh... Enforced mass evictions, came to blows with inhabitants. An old woman was burned to death in the flames of a hut she refused to leave. In this manner, she appropriated 794,000 acres of land, which had belonged to to these clans for time immemorial. Mm -hmm. She assigned and expelled inhabitants of some 6,000 acres down to two acres. And these 6,000 acres had until this time lain completely in waste. They were worthless land. And she moved every one of those people over to them. They brought in no income to their owners. They were of no value. Uh, The Duchess and the nobility of her heart went so far as to let these wasted, worthless lands. uh, She she rented them out at a cost of two shillings per uh, per day, per acre, to the clansmen, who were for centuries had shed blood for her family. These are the people, these were the feudal, these were the serfs that fought for her clan their entire life. Uh, She divided the whole of the stolen land into 29 huge sheep farms, each inhabited by a single family. For the most part, imported English farm servants, and by 1825, the 15,000 gales who had lived there were replaced by 131,000 sheep. Mm-hmm. Guys, this is uh, this, she is a great, great the, the example of the good uh, Democrat. 
Exactly. The 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 Howard Schultzes and the Jeff Bezoses and the yeah. the benevolent billionaire guys. We are so woken on your side as they violently step on your neck mm. and would do anything but look mm. you in the eye if you were anything other than a millionaire to them. Mm-hmm. The the rapeians <sighs> that are really just about getting oh, women instead. Christ. The spoiling of church property, the fraudulent alienation of state domains, the theft of common lands, the usurpation of feudal and clan property, and its transformation into modern private property under circumstances of ruthless terrorism, which is what it was, all these things were just so many idyllic methods of primitive accumulation. They conquered the field for capitalist agriculture, they incorporated the soil itself into capital, and created for the urban industries the necessary supply of free and rightless proletarians. I've got outlawed proletarians, so I, I, rightless is a better yeah, translation. Yeah, guys, that's, that, that was only chapter 27. Yeah. Chapter 28! <laughs> You're talking about naming specific examples. Yeah. yeah, and again, this is one of those times where we're not going to hit all of them, but I'm no. sorry. I'm going to hit quite a few because you yeah. need to listen to this. If you, Oh, it's a good chapter. It's yeah. going to happen. Chapter 28, bloody legislation against the expropriated since the end of the 15th century. <laughs> the forcing down of wages by act of parliament. Now we're getting into that fun time where, again, in Adam Smith's utopia, um, if there's something you notice in all of, you know, especially, and it's, it's hyper distilled in libertarianism. This is the... Libertarianism is a step further than even Marx would have foreseen because it was it wasn't conceived of at that time. The libertarian to be associated with capitalism, by the way, really came about in like the seventies or eighties. Yeah, it Freeman. wasn't Milton Friedman in the gang. Yeah, Milton Friedman. It was it, old school. You never used the term libertarian no. with capitalism. There was there was libertarian was the softer word for anarchist, which was a very left concept. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, there was the the opposite, supposedly quote unquote, is authoritarian which was starting to is this blanket term that that angles railed on and we, and yes. we would love to talk about angles and on authoritarianism and we will and uh, but you know and and then later was used to like try to equal communists to nazis which was the yes. stupidest garbage propaganda in the world yes. but nonetheless they didn't like go well you know we want to paint liberalism as totally not not, you know, Nazism or communism because we want to make communism just as bad and Nazism just made it too obvious. So we're we're the opposite, you know, in calling libertarian. That's a very, very new thing. That's that's like Nathan just said, a Friedman and the gang thing. Totally, totally new. But Smith and them, their their whole goal was to say, look, guys, the market rules. If you just left it alone, it would it would solve itself. You don't need intervention. You don't need anything like that. The invisible um, hand of the, the market. The invisible hand will strangely will has a lot of blood on it. Uh huh. And chapter twenty eight is a uh, a a fuck you list, if you will, of no, no, you absolutely required force in the form of a government to even make this system exist in the first place. And it only survives because of force from the government. If you dissolve the government, this system would not exist. It is literally un, it is so unnatural that we would not come into it unless we were forced at gunpoint. So kick it off with your boy, boy. The proletariat created by the breaking up of the bands of feudal retainers and by forceful expropriation of the people from the soil, this free and rightless proletariat could not possibly be absorbed by the nascent manufacturers as fast as it was thrust on the world. We have a labor surplus. Yeah. We created too many laborers, and we ain't got enough jobs for them. Uh, so what happens? 
On the other hand, these men are suddenly dragged from their accustomed mode of life, uh, because you took them off of their land, uh, could not immediately adapt themselves to the discipline of their new condition. They didn't like being slaves all that much. Yeah. Uh, and they were turned into mass in massive quantities into beggars, robbers, and vagabonds. The people funniest word for all these people. In, in very disorganized way, but still yes, fighting back. They're in their own way. Uh, Robin, Robin Hood wasn't real, but there was a billion little Robin Hoods uh-huh. happening. Hence, at the end of the 15th century... Uh, well, how did I lose my place? Hence, at the end of the 15th century, and during the whole of the 16th century, a bloody legislation against vagabondage was enforced throughout Western Europe. The fathers of the present working class were chastised for their enforced transformation into vagabonds and paupers. Uh, it legis- was illegal to be poor. It was, e- and, and they it, had it, to make it illegal to be poor. It's always been illegal to be, be poor, poor in capitalism. Yep. Legislation treated them as voluntary criminals and assumed that it was entirely within their own power to go on working under the old conditions, which in fact no longer existed. Mm-hmm. You just need to find yourself a job. Uh-huh. How, no, how you can go, you? why just go back to doing what you were doing? I yeah. can't. They took my land and my stuff. Vagabond! Yeah, I mean, and the, the same thing now. You know, I mean, I, I can't. They they fired me. I lost my house. You repossessed it, your greedy mm-hmm. ass. Well, uh, yeah, sorry. Vagrancy laws. Now yeah. let's go put some spikes on a tree branch and, yeah. and an armrest in the middle of a bench so you yeah. can't lay on it. So back to my everyone's favorite socialist, Henry VIII, 1530. Beggars who are old and incapable of working receive a beggar's license. Guys, you need a license to be homeless. Um, interesting. Show me your hobo license. I don't well, know. Well, hey, you know, I mean, this, it was, it was essentially, it was essentially how you had to like, wait for months in line and be, you know, pushed out Clinton style because yeah. these were very Clinton policies that did this, you know, to get on disability yeah. or to, to, to get on TANF or something, but for panhandling. Yeah. So basically, again, he created a social safety net. He allowed people to panhandle. Henry VIII, great socialist hero. Yeah. On the other I'm hand, kick you in the face. <laughs> and imprisonment was on hand for sturdy vagabonds. So if you weren't actually... So if you were the George Costanza of unemployment, if you were just, you know, Vandalay industrying your way around and not working because you didn't want to, um, you got whipped and imprisoned yeah. uh, again. Which I'm sure that was totally just deserving people. Uh-huh. And the hunt for deserving poor people who are just abusing the system is always, always just. Just yeah. the most just thing that we should the, always be reaching what's for. What's the equivalent of a Cadillac queen, but for horse and carriages? Right, the, the buggy, exactly. I don't know, buggy, buggy driving, or something? Yeah, bu- buggy driving. Buggy uh, aristocrat. Buggy driving beggar's license queen, know. something like that, yeah. They are to be tied to the cart tail and whipped until blood streams <laughs> from their bodies. This was written in the law. Then they are to swear an oath to go back to their birthplace or wherever they have lived the last three years and quote-unquote put themselves to labor. What grim irony. By the 27th edict of Henry VIII, the previous statute is repeated, but strengthened with new clauses because that wasn't enough. For the second arrest of vagabondage, the whipping is to be repeated and half the ear sliced off. Okay, uh, guys, he may not be the great socialist hero we all wanted. Yeah, and just remember, I mean, anyone tries to do like some Orientalist thing that goes back to like 4,000-year-old 
laws in the Middle East and claims they're totally just what was happening 10 years ago in Iran, mm-hmm. and they cut off people's you know hands for stealing, stealing. over there, or whatever racist shit they want to do. I'm pretty sure uh, they just watched the beginning of Aladdin and thought that was modern history. Yeah, probably. But, um, you know, nonetheless, <laughs> racism part of that aside, uh, look at the shit happening in England, you know? I mean, it's just like the whole racist, like, Native American is, is scalping people. Scalping started in Europe. It started oh, in Eastern well, Europe. Guys, guys, we're going to get there. Don't worry about it. Um, what percentage of, uh, of Trump voters do you think think Agrabah is a real country? Oh, God. Okay, good. Just making sure. Uh, <laughs> for the third time you got caught being a vagabond, by the way, uh, you were executed as a hardened criminal. <laughs> so three times being homeless, uh, off with his head. Henry VIII, great guy. Edward VI, maybe he's the hero we all want. A statute of the first year of his reign ordains that if anyone refuses to work, he shall be condemned as a slave. Hold on now. Yeah. If you are, if you are, if you refuse to work, you are condemned as a slave by the person that denounced you as an idler. So if I don't like you and I go to the court and say, he's lazy, you're my slave. Yeah. Literal slave. And and there's totally, totally not incentive for me just to decide that you're being paid too much and say that you're being lazy. Definitely. No, there's no incentive there whatsoever. None. But let's... Just none. But let's keep going. The the master shall feed his slave on bread, water, weak broth, and refuse meat, as he thinks fit. Um, He has a right to force him to do any work, no matter how disgusting. That's literally in the law. Uh, with whip and chains. If the slave is absent for a fortnight, not the fun video game with the flossing dance, he is condemned to slavery for life and is to be branded on forehead or back with the letter S. If he runs away three times, he's executed as a felon. Yeah, now Apparently I, they had a very good three strikes law in the 1500s. Yeah, I, I do want to highlight too that no matter how disgusting, because of the time, yeah. and uh, disgusting wasn't just icky, I'm grossed out, I don't want to clean that nasty bathroom. It was... I don't want to clean the nasty bathroom because that's going to give me a disease that makes what? me die. I don't want to go get cholera. So these aren't 1540s micros? The great hero <laughs> of the working not. man? I just, God damn it. <laughs> on fire tonight. Just, God, barb after barb after barb. <laughs> I'm, I'm never not letting you drive again. I know, I know. The master can sell him, bequeath him, let him out on hire as a slave, just as he can any other personal chattel or cattle. Yeah, now this is, again, chattel slavery is distinct from other forms of slavery. Not that slavery is not terrible in any form and not old, but chattel slavery is unique, terrible slavery to capitalism. This is where the term comes from, but mind you that the, by far greatest expense of chattel slavery has been colonized people, uh, especially, of course, you know, the people captured from Africa and drug over the United States on ships, but also just if you go somewhere, the indigenous people, the people that Columbus captured and cut off their hands and wore them around his neck as a, as a necklace and, and we're gonna all get, of that stuff. we're going to get that. Like, they're sure. going to get oh, specifically yeah. to that. So save, save the, save the save some of that. Okay. But that's what chattel slavery, you know, so just be very, you know, when people say, oh, slavery's existed for 2,000 years, it comes from here, you know, and, and Africa enslaved their own people. People in zero AD, not the fucking same. No, not the same. So, uh, also, the I, I just read the first two. There are literally five more pages of yeah. those kinds of laws. I'm not going to read all of them to you. You should go read them <laughs> yourself. But these a lot, yeah, a lot. So I skipped down to alphabet codes. Thus, were the agricultural folk first forcibly expropriated from the soil, driven from their homes, turned into vagabonds, then whipped, branded, and tortured by grotesquely terrorist 
terroristic laws into accepting the discipline necessary for the system of wage labor. Guys, if it was natural and this was a thing that just came about naturally by some people who worked harder, you wouldn't have to fucking make laws allowing you to execute them if they didn't do it three times. And this shit is on paper. It's on it's, paper history. This it is, is not... We are not... This is literally how the system was created. This is not Marx just decided that, that this is how it works to write a storybook the way a lot of, you know, liberal economic yes. would. Um, this is... On paper law. How we did it. How it uh, happened. You want to talk about freaking re-education through labor? Uh, uh, this was re-education. This, yeah. was, this was the definition of re-educating your population. Yeah, I don't want to dis- disparage the idea of re-education because it wasn't this terrible. No, and it's, no, It wasn't as no, bad as the, no. the name and people's think contemporary thought of it makes it sound. No. But this was what people think of re-education. Yes. Again, I mean, I, I don't like the term Orwellian because I don't want to give any credence to George Orwell and his badly written... You communist... Anti-communist scare tactic bullshit. That said... He did a couple good things early. Okay. Oh, come on. Fair enough. Uh, Anyway, you just so so quickly turned so badly. I know, I know. It turned quickly, but... So badly. But anyway, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is the dystopian stuff people describe as Orwellian capitalists turned around and, and made that you know yeah. everything they fear they either already were from the beginning or they've made yes it is all the same also I had to get re-education to labor my goal is to fit as many Rise Against Song titles into this as humanly possible so that's one guys keep track at home um, <laughs> Disparity by Design is coming up next uh, it is not enough that the conditions of labor are concentrated at one pole of society in the shape of capital while the other pole are grouped masses of men who have nothing to sell with their labor power again these two polar distinctions, wealth and opulence at one end, misery and degradation at the other. Nor is it enough that they are compelled to sell themselves voluntarily. The advance of capitalist production develops a working class which by education, tradition, and habit looks upon the requirements of that mode of production as self-evident natural laws. The organization of the capitalist process of production, once fully developed, breaks down all resistance. The constant generation of relative surplus population keeps the law of supply and demand of labor and therefore wages within very narrow limits which correspond to capital's valorization. The silent compulsion of economic relations sets the seal on the domination of the capitalist over his worker. Direct extra economic force is still of course used, but only in exceptional cases. In the ordinary run of things, the worker can be left to the natural laws of production, i.e. it is possible to rely on his dependence on capital, which springs from the conditions of production themselves and is guaranteed in perpetuity. Yeah, ladies this, and gentlemen, yeah, there is a reason you're educated the way you are. Yes. I mean, this is... We don't go to work every day just because we're broke. That's obviously a big, big incentive. It's because we just think that's how things are. We think that's right. We think this is the only system that works. We think this has been around since the dawn of time, or if it hasn't, it's the best system that's mm-hmm. solved all the problems. We are we are not taught these things on accident. No. You know, just, I mean, it, it, the the stuff that the, the, the propaganda bourgeoisie narratives have been there from the beginning. Yes. You know, the... The liberal economic theorists have been saying this bullshit because the ruling class had been saying this bullshit. This was trained bullshit. It was scripted things. And, and you know, I, I, I like the sarcastic uh, uh, tweet one time about a guy that was, that was talking about uh, liberals making fun of how, 
how stupid some Trump supporters are. And they're like, ah, listen to those Trump supporters. They'll believe anything. Uh, anyway, Chinese people are making these Uyghur yeah. Muslims, like, tear off their nipples and sew them to their chin. And, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I mean, the point of the tweet was, of course, you know, I mean, you, you just pick your thing and believe whatever yes. the hell you want and then have some arrogance over. We all, at some point in our lives, and, and hope to God by, by the end of this this book, uh, if not, you know, just down the road from from listening to this podcast and any organization you work you're doing, you you figured out to not buy any of this shit anymore. No, but at some point, there's a there's a lot of arrogance where we get this partisan idea and look at the other partisans of the people gulping the bullshit and laugh at what they believe. But collectively, everyone in that partisan game, everyone in the America is great, the capitalisms, everyone that, that believes in words like founding fathers and, and shit like that, you know, and, and has, they're patriots and USA and we can make this country great and we're country of immigrants and all that bullshit, right? All of that takes some kind of disbelief that you've been trained to think uh, you you don't think on your own. You know, critical no. thinking is, is an important skill, but it's not a natural skill. You are trained to critically think or you're trained to not critically think. And a lot of us that are arrogant, that, that think we think for ourselves, we're trained not to critically think. And I, trust me, when you suddenly start critically thinking, all this stuff is going to fall in line. And a few of the people around you that trust you and see the sudden change are going to think, you know, you're crazy or you joined some cult or, or whatever. They're going to yep. say shit like that. Because the idea of not thinking critically is completely irrational to them. Yes, you know, are it is you, so ingrained. And it's so, yeah, they're so ingrained. Like how you can't fuck my world up like that. No. You know, it's, and it's and it's always there's gonna be you're gonna need some. There's gonna have to be a catalyst to get. Yeah. Usually there, and it's unfortunate. It's usually something tragic. It's something bad that once you start questioning one part of it, you'll question the rest of it, and, and that's it'll just fall like dominoes. It, and the, and the problem is, is as individuals, some of us are opening up. Yeah, and that's good, and we yes. need more and more of us to do it, uh, and then we need to, you know, band together and organize and actually do work. And, and the way we're going to open up is not just hoping for that domino to happen. We need to go out and tell people. We need to not be afraid of the public reaction. We need to get our ideas out there so they sound more normal, yeah. and so people can start going. Well, no, those are the only ones that make sense together. And I'm not doing haywire acts to believe this. Haywire acts to believe this. You know, not everything needs to be some twelve dimensional chess where no. you know. <laughs> I mean, th this idea. And, and I was talking to someone about this today online, and they're they're talking about oh, they're denying humanitarian stuff in Venezuela, and and not thinking about again, Venezuela is going to come up a lot right now. Yo. And and, and denying the sanctions and stuff and it's this idea of humanitarian aid in the first place it's like the government providing for its people in venezuela must be what caused the poverty socialism yep. is bad so the fix is the government providing for these poor people it just has to be our, our government, government. <laughs> like yeah. where, what the fuck you know but you never think like that 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 stream isn't there until this stuff is clicked and that's why we have to spread this theory. And that's why we have to make it click for ourselves. And that's why we have to put it into action so people know you're not just bullshitting or collecting knowledge to stand up on a pellet stool and, and be the next arrogant person that thinks they know everything and they're caught in some stream like everybody else. You, you have to be down on the ground organizing and doing and really helping the people that you should be caring about and wanting to help anyway with this theory. And while you're doing it, spreading this theory, learning more about this theory yourself, and changing how you think. Because that's and the that's important what, part. Because yeah. there is there is very, very critical points of this where you're going to... Again, very, very intelligent people can disagree about things. If all you've been told is one side of a story, you can know that side really, really, really well. Yeah. 
but you have to step out again. The thing you notice more, the thing I notice more, and again, if anyone wants to come on and, and, and prove me wrong, I'm more than welcome. But I find that in general, in, in broad stroking, most of the leftists I talk to, all of us have read right wing political economy. I've, I've read Adam Smith. I read Milton Friedman. I know what the fuck they said. It's not like I don't understand. That's everywhere. It's not like I don't understand the argument. And even then, I was fully engrossed in that culture for a long time. So I've read all of those arguments. I have that side of the story. Yeah. I have this side of the story. This side is far more compelling when you have both sides of them lined up. And, and you've got to wonder why it doesn't get told more, why it's not taught, why it's not even acknowledged in most in yeah. most histories. And then think about that and decide for yourself, why is that the case? And and again, you know, I mean, this deeper history, just like we're talking about how we're a little chauvinistic with history and we need to, well, yeah. and a little, a little is an understatement. A little, yeah. <laughs> Mild Eurocentrism. But but we need we need a less Eurocentric history, you know, to, to tell this other side of indigenous people who were, you know, living these lands and like we talked about, you know, had concepts like two-spirit, had concepts of peace. There wasn't warfare. You didn't have these nations with armies. You know, we hear about tribalism. These tribes coexisted. People lived Live here. People lived here. Fine, and there was there was peace. There was incredible amounts of peace, yeah. um, and and they worked with the land. And you know you don't hear about any of that stuff. You don't even it, it doesn't even cross your conscious to think about how that stuff exists. No. You know, and in the political economy, you know, you think about well, you got to hear both and the both sides sidesists. Oh, both sides. And the both sides sidesists. What they want to do is they want to hear. Aspect like there'll be aspect A that reinforces capitalism and aspect B that reinforces capitalism, and they want to hear both so that capitalism's reinforced twice, and then tell you they're just hearing both sides. But you're never hearing the actual other side that doesn't reinforce capitalism. You're you know if you're looking at at a magnet, okay, and, and let's say it's a rectangular magnet, so there's a okay. north pole and a south pole, okay. Looking at one corner of the north pole versus the other corner of the north pole will not tell you anything about the magnetism of the south pole. No. None of it. None. But people all the time see the north, uh, the the one corner of the North Pole and the other corner of the North Pole and think that's the two sides. That's everything. And anyone on the south corner of the South Pole are just either evil or crazy or that, that doesn't even cross their mind. It doesn't exist. It doesn't it does, exist. It, that's, yeah. That, and that's, it's, you know, that's why we're here doing this. Yes. <laughs> that, and, and that's really the big part is. Yeah. So, it was forbidden. Uh, and again, we're back into... Laws. We're talking about yes. laws. We're talking about how the legal structure enforces capitalism. It was forbidden on pain of imprisonment to pay higher wages than those fixed by the statute. You know how we fight for a minimum wage right now, guys? They literally had a maximum wage. They said this is all you can earn. Now, that sounds like a great idea in an era where you have CEO pay from... CEO pay in the, the 70s was something like... The disparity between a CEO and your average worker by median was something like 30 times. Yeah. Which is bad. That's not good. I mean, you know. But it's like, not like 250 but times. But it's not 300 times, which is what it was averaging now. And then it's not, it's definitely not a thousand times, which it approached during the uh, the peak of right before the financial collapse. Um, yeah. That kind of disparity. Is, I think Del Monte is the, the biggest disparity right now, like 500-something uh, times, something ridiculous. No, it's bad. It's, and, and so, again, there's no good fruit companies. A maximum wage sounds like a great idea when you're trying to cap it, uh, when you're trying to cap what a billionaire can earn. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're yeah. talking about you couldn't pay your laborers too much because they might get uppity and we needed to enforce that by law. Yeah. So, 
But the taking of higher wages was always more severely punished by those who took them than those that gave them. So while both people would get punished if he got paid a higher wage, the guy that earned the higher wage definitely got punished more than the guy that paid him illegally that higher wage. But, yeah. you know, whatever. A statute of 1360 increased the penalties and authorized masters to extort labor at the legal rate of wages by using corporal punishment. I could beat you if you thought you should be paid more than I told you to. All combinations, contracts, oaths, etc., by which masons and carpenters reciprocally, reciprocally bound themselves were declared null and void. All of your uh, uh, organization, if you came up with a labor agreement, nah, throw them out. All of them. Imagine if every it labor... It really was proto -rigged. If every union agreement was just fucked off in, in, by, by, by Trump tomorrow, just said all of your union agreements are gone. That's what they did. That doesn't sound that crazy when it's Trump, but it, it No, would be it shocking. really, really doesn't. Um, the, the worker combinations are treated as a hate. And again, when I say worker combinations, any, any, any labor coming together, organized labor is what we're talking about there. Yes. They're treated as heinous crimes from the 14th century until 1825, 300 years. The length of time that this country has existed, it was considered a, a treasonous crime to be part of a labor union. Yes. So again, there is a reason and we just went through it. Why education is vital. Yes. But you can't do education alone. No. You want to know what threatened... And again, you know, I mean, of course they're scared of us having guns. They, they want to take them away or, yes. or put them in their wealthy white supremacist hands only so that they have extra guns on their side. Yes. Of course they're scared of us having guns. You know, we're going to have a revolution. And of course they're scared of us reading Marx and, and having these, these books and things. That's why they, they tamper it away out of our minds. And literally make it hard to get half the yeah. books we get. We have to get from like a weird off the ball source because they literally don't want to print them. Yeah, right. I mean, they're, they're, of course they don't want us to get alternative media, and that's why they're screaming. It's all Russian propaganda, and, and we're just filtering out fake news and and shit like that, right? But and fact checking or whatever the shit they want to say. But the fact of the matter is, nothing. And any time they they react like that and it scares them, that's a sign that that you're threatening them with that. Nothing, nothing threatened them more than organizing. You could have a fucking stick, okay? And just have the theory of those assholes are bad as long as you know who the right assholes are. Not it, again, you know. I would I would strongly recommend we need to have theory, or yes. or a revolution would do no good. But nonetheless, our theory could could just literally be those assholes are bad. It still scares, scares the shit out of them. Yeah. And, and, of course, we're going to educate better who the enemies are and this theory, things like yeah. that. Organize. There's no way better to, to spread theory and, and educate people than organizing. Organizing, even just labor organizations, scares the living shit out of capitalists. Look it was at, illegal for hundreds of years. Look at the government. And it's attacked now. Look at the government shutdown that we just got through yeah. with and are about to have again. What? That went on. That was the longest government shutdown in history. What finally broke it? The uh, was it the was it the goodness of their heart? No, the Laguardia shut down for yeah. an hour, and they said we might put air traffic controllers on strike, and they shit their collective pants. Yeah, do not deny labor has power. Organized labor has power. It just scares the ever living shit out. It also again reinforces something we touched on before uh, that I think we were talking about with the government shutdown. Of course, shutdown's kind of a, a propaganda term. Oh anyway. yeah, for sure. It's it's the government. Quick robbing the poor yeah. uh -huh. for a propaganda game to, uh -huh. to pretend to make their argument to when you're not 
buying into the partisan slap fight enough and realizing that there's actual issues where there's a big, like George Collins said, there's one big party and you're not in it. And you're actually becoming awake to all that stuff. They want to throw you back into the partisan nitpick. And so they keep their armies. They keep the police. They're not actually shutting down the actual government. But they stop adding new legislation for a little while, and then they make sure that like all the all the programs that help the poor, all the ser- government you know workers and social workers that are are there to help you out, you know they all go away. Only only the armed guard of the state. The stuff that actively oppresses you doesn't go away. doesn't go away. Just the other stuff, other stuff that that resolves conflict by siding with you so that you don't rise up and, and slit their throat goes away so that you can be flung back into the partisan slap fight and think those are the two sides again. Mm-hmm. You know th- it's it's just propaganda garbage. It really is. Um, but that said, you know, I mean, it, we talked about it when, when this, this quote-unquote shutdown happened, is because of the imperialism and because of the, the obsession with delivery and stuff like that, global warming be damned. We can't, we won't get into how Amazon, aside from treating workers like shit because everybody buys everything online, just escalates global warming versus brick-and-mortar stores. Uh, you know, all of that stuff, we are a transport economy. Yep. People think we're a service economy, and there yeah, are service yeah. jobs that most of us are, and those are very underappreciated. Care about your service workers. For the love of God, whether you are one or not, and most of you probably are one, care about service workers. Have some empathy for the, the shit they deal with. Uh, this is not actually a service economy. It's a transport economy. Mm-hmm. Those are the levers. That's the bloodline. So when, when LaGuardia said, we're shutting the fuck down, there was a lot of pant shitting. <laughs> Collectively. <laughs> So, the spirit of the Statute of Laborers of 1349, 1349, people, yeah. and its offshoots shine clearly in the fact that while the state certainly dictates a maximum of wages, it on no account fixes a minimum. So again, free market, everything should go to what it is, but there's a hard cap on the high end, nothing on the low end. The yeah. free market can determine the low end, but the high end, uh-uh, don't you can get, get for two seconds, think you can get more than yeah, that. So, and obviously, we, we've heard changing that, and it's... The minimum wage is pathetic, and look yes. how hard it is to get it up. Yeah. In the 16th century, as we know, and this is, holy shit, you could change this to the 21st if you wanted to. This next <laughs> sentence works just as well with the words 21st century, as we know. The condition of the workers became much worse. The money wage rose, but not in proportion to the depreciation of money and the corresponding rise in the prices of commodities. Real wages, therefore, fell. Hey, look, the economy's doing great. Woo, GDP, GDP. Wait, yeah. why can't I buy shit anymore? Uh, that's That's weird. Nevertheless, the laws for keeping them down remained in force, together with the ear-clipping and branding of those whom no one was willing to take into service. Uh, by Elizabeth, yay, the justices of the peace were given the power, turn, to fix certain wages and to modify them according to the time of year and current prices of commodities. So, again, the cops could just say, here's what you can make, because I said so. We skip some more fun laws and jump to the barbarous laws against combination of workers. We're back to don't you dare talk to another person about your your labor struggles. Yeah. Uh, collapsed in 1825. We made it. 1359 to 1825. We finally got it. In the face of the threatening attitude of the proletariat. They got scared. They backed down. Despite this, they disappeared only in part. Certainly... Per- Certain pretty survivals of the old statutes did not vanish until 1859. I got beautiful fragments. Finally, oh, yeah, even better then. Finally, the act of June 29th, 1871, purported to remove the last traces of this class legislation by giving 
legal recognition to trade unions. Again, 1871. 1359 to 1871. And this shit was stripped right back away from the 50s on bit it, by bit. And still oh, and it, they, they constantly do. every For every... Const- every the fuck do you think right to work is? For every cosmetic gain that labor gets, they will find four more... It, the Hydra head comes out and they find four more ways to make sure that never happens mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. But another act of the same date, an act to amend the criminal law relating to violence, threats, and molestation, in fact, reestablished the previous situation in a new form. It's the fucking 13th Amendment and then all over again, guys. Only like 300 years. It's the Tarantino effect. It's th- we did it 200 years earlier. In fact, reestablished the previous situation in a new form. This parliamentary conjuring trick withdrew the means the workers could use in a strike or lockout from the common law and placed them under exceptional penal legislation, the interpretation of which fell to the manufacturers themselves in their capacity of justice of the peace. Really? They're, they're literally letting the fucking factory owner regulate what rules you can have for a strike. How do you think those are going to go? Skipping forward. During the very first storms of the revolution, we're jumping to France a little bit here, the French bourgeoisie dared take away from the workers the right of association they had just acquired. This is during the fucking French Revolution, people. Mm -hmm. The French Revolution. By a decree of 14 June 1791, they declared that every combination by the workers was an assault on liberty and the declaration of the rights of man, <laughs> punishable by a fine of 500 livres, together with the deprivation of rights of an active citizen for one year. Yeah, I will say, I will say, <sighs> I, the guillotine jokes are great. Fine. Okay. The guillotine was the symbol of these motherfuckers, these 1791 uh-huh. don't you organize motherfuckers, bourgeoisie, that that were complaining as the and we'll get to Marx describing the rivers running with blood as they they f- complain about their property the, when they took back from the Paris Commune. But these motherfuckers, the Paris Commune, burned that fucking guillotine to the ground. Uh-huh. The guillotine is not our symbol. No, no, it is not. We will find a better, more efficient way of killing the rich people. Uh, this law, which used state compulsion to confine the struggle between capital and labor within limits convenient for capital, has outlived revolutions and changes of dynasty. Even the terror left it untouched. It was only struck out of the penal code quite recently. So again, we're talking 1850s here. Nothing is more characteristic than the pretext of this bourgeois coup d'etat. Granting, says Le Chapier, the repertoire of the committee on this law, that wages ought to be a little higher than they are that they ought to be high enough for him that he receives them to be free from the state of absolute dependence, which results from the lack of the necessities of life and which is almost a state of slavery. So we want to pay him just enough that the state doesn't have to pay for him anyway. Mm -hmm. Granting this, the workers must nevertheless not be permitted to inform themselves about their own interests, nor to act in common and thereby lessen their absolute dependence, which is almost a state of slavery, because doing this, they'll infringe on the liberty of their former masters, who are at prison entrepreneurs. Again, this is the freedom they talk about when they say America's the land of freedom and spreading freedom. And they have this freedom index. It is the freedom to exploit and oppress if you are already powerful. They still use freedom in this way. Maybe not ironically like Marx. Maybe they're trying to be dead serious or they just know they're, most of the time they know, they're not idiots. They just know they're abusing the word for their own interest and they're not trying to be clever about it. But the fact of the matter is they really do mean freedom, even if they don't intend to, even if they're trying yeah. to lie. But it's this freedom. It's just like the state's right was the state's right to allow slavery to be legal, yes. right? It's the freedom of almost slavery. It's the freedom to exploit. That's the freedom they want. So even uh, if they don't, they don't know they mean it, like, 
cleverly or ironic or marks ironically. It's what they really mean. That's the freedom they want. And, and again, you know, this is where they get their libertarian stuff. The freedom, Milton Friedman, free, isn't it free to choose is his like big seminal yeah. work? Yeah, right. Free to choose to exploit the shit out of oh. people. You know, I mean, free, you know, that's the that's the freedom they want to spread to, to Venezuela now, and, mm-hmm. and they're trying to, and they and that they spread to the Soviet Union and cause, what is it called the the, the red the or, uh, black fifteen years or the horrible fifteen years where life expectancy went down the every hang- single year. Talking about the red hangover. Yeah, the red hangover. But there was yeah. there's another name that's a different oh a different I, color. I've only known that, it like as the red black hangover. or some there's something death or something like that. It's anyways just pure like most miserable 15 years in human history when they when the Soviet Union fell is what what you know former Soviet countries went through because the Soviet Union was so good and liberalism was so shitty and it really wasn't the resources or exploitation because it didn't exploit propping the Soviet Union up like America America's power is natural resources of the land and horrible exploitation of the global south the Soviet Union was propped up by actual just socialism being good mm-hmm. so it caused the most miserable 15 years ever when it collapsed um you know, I mean, so that that's that's the freedom they want. That's their freedom index. The free that's that's all the freedom. That's oh, that's the freedom dude, they we, deliver. We cannot get on the, the free freedom index is bullshit. If you believe otherwise, stop. Yeah, go away. <laughs> stop it. But that's that. And so of course they can bomb people into freedom. Yeah. Because they're only bombing the poor people. They're going to be exploited. Yeah. Chapter twenty nine, Genesis of the Capitalist Farmer. This uh, this is a three page uh, chapter. None of it is that relevant. No. It's completely worthless. <laughs> uh, guys, they became farmers. Uh, then those Neat. farmers slowly but surely bought... They, they kulaked themselves. This is kulaking. <laughs> they became cool. They, they were farmers, and then they bought a little bit more, and then they had wage laborers for them. If you want to understand what kulaks are, read chapter 29. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, then listen to us when we talk about, I'm sure, a lot of oh, stuff Oh, I'm sure we out. will, yeah. We'll get to the kulaks. Chapter 30... Impact of the agricultural revolution on industry, the creation of a home market for industrial capital. A far more interesting chapter than it sounds. <laughs> the thinning out of the independent, self-supporting peasants corresponded directly with the concentration of the industrial proletariat in the way that Geoffrey St. Hilaire explained the condensation of cosmic matter at one place by its rarefication at another. But this was not the only consequence. In spite of a smaller number of cultivators, we have less farmers, the soil brought forth as much, if not more, because the revolution in property relation happened to be accompanied by methods of cultivation that were greater and more improved, greater cooperation, a higher concentration of the means of production, and so on. And because the agricultural wage laborers were made to work at a higher level of intensity and the field of production on which they worked for themselves shrank more and more. These things all led to less people were producing the same, if not more, stuff. And again, we've talked, I don't know how many chapters, about how that happens. Yes. With, and again, this is why Marx is now giving you just practical examples of these things. And again, this is why these chapters could be the only thing you read. If you're willing to accept the terms, these chapters could be done on their own. Yeah, if, you, if you're willing to trust Marx the way we've said, you know, go back and, and read Marx if you don't yeah. trust us. We've been through enough detail with a lot more in these chapters. If you trust Marx even more than sitting through our podcast and hearing us say trust Marx because you know he's right, you can just read these chapters and you're done. But he spent painstaking time establishing this, and that's what we've been doing for the last six months. Yes. With the setting free, quote-unquote, of a part of the agricultural population, therefore, their former means of nourishment were also set free. They were now transformed into material elements of variable capital. 
pulling the phrases that we've been using these last six months mm-hmm. in. The peasant expropriated and cast adrift had to obtain the value of the means of subsistence from his new lord, the industrial capitalist, in the form of wages. And the same thing happened to those raw materials of industry which depended on indigenous agriculture. They were transformed into an element of constant capital. We're seeing all of these abstract ideas shoved into reality. Mm-hmm. Suppose, for example, that one part of the Westphalian peasantry, Germans, who at the time of Frederick II, all spun flax, are forcibly expropriated and driven from the soil. And suppose that the other part, who remain behind, are turned into the day laborers of large-scale farmers. At the same time, large establishments for flax spinning and weaving arise. We get looms. We get all sorts of stuff coming up. Again, these are... Correlation does not equal causation. Could just basically be the highlight of this paragraph. But at the same time, the large establishments for flax spinning and weaving arrive. And in these, the men who have been set free now work for wages. The flax looks exactly as it did before. Not a fiber is changed. But a new social soul has entered its body. Social relations, guys. Marx likes them. It now forms part a part of the constant capital of the master manufacturer. Formerly, this was divided among a mass of small producers who cultivated it themselves and span it with the families in small proportions. Now it is concentrated in the hands of one capitalist who sets others to spin it and weave it for him. The extra labor expended in flax spinning was realized formerly in income to numerous peasant families, or perhaps in Frederick's time in taxes. Now it is realized in profit for a few capitalists. The spindles and looms formerly scattered over the face of the countryside are now crowded together in a few great labor barracks, together with the workers and raw material. And the spindles, looms, and raw materials are now transformed from means for the independent existence of the spinners and weavers into means for commanding them and extracting unpaid labor from them. You cannot tell from looking at the large factories and the large farms that they have originated from the combination of many small centers of production and have been built up by the expropriation of many small independent producers. That was a long section. That is, it is such a, it is such an, oh, you're okay. Wait a minute. You don't see, you look at a factory, you look at Detroit, you look at any of these things and you don't see well, how was that done before, and what was that like, and what you yeah, just see, what did we ruin? You just see. You never interrogate where did that come from. What was its origin? It's the same way with again. We're doing this for wealth all the way back. You never interrogate why Jeff Bezos was rich. Well, why was his family slightly less rich than him, and why was their family slightly less rich than him? How did they get it, compound interest of years and years and generations of exploitation get you to where you are? Yeah, I mean, we've talked. I don't know how many times about. Uh, um, you know, apartheid rule. Ah, Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. Elon Musk apartheid, apartheid emeralds. <laughs> and, you know, and, and apartheid emeralds, man. Oh, he's uh, taking them to space. Did not just ingeniously invent PayPal out of his ass. He went into it with a couple other guys because he had the money. No, that's right. He invented because, it with the guy that had sex with Hulk Hogan. I don't know what Peter Thiel did. What did Peter yeah, Thiel do? I, I don't know, but Peter Thiel and him had money. And they so did they have the money. resources to do this. It's not like they were the first ones to ever think of taking online payments. Um, and, and, PayPal launched them. Now Peter Thiel does vampire shit or something. I'm convinced he must be. He, <laughs> no, I, not I, just convinced. He's absolutely. pretty open about wanting young people blood. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> but on top of that, you know, if you've got Elon Musk, 
who went out and oh. he just bought Tesla. Yeah. And then people, like, we said in, like, our first episode, I yeah, think. Yeah, I'm sure. He's not Tesla. No, he's He just not. owns a company with that name that just punts fucking cars into space for yeah, fun. For shit Makes pretty decent electric cars. Yeah. And when the other pretty decent electric cars cost, like, 20, 30 grand... His cost a hundred, but they must be the only ones that that exist because they look cooler or some shit. Yeah, something, something, something. Venture capitalism. I yeah, know. yeah. Jesus. Ugh. But oh, and, he, and he's trying to find new ways to uh, siphon poor people out of stuff like subways and buses. Oh uh, yeah, no, we invented a subway a with one car for that, one person that launches you a thousand trillion miles an hour underground. <laughs> the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> the the what are the tubes they send mail up in the pneumatic tubes? Pneumatic, yeah, the, the the pneumatic tubes for people. Oh, people. <laughs> it's, it's, it was just like that one tweet the one time where it was some some goddamn oblivious Silicon Valley guy that like accidentally reverse engineered buses and thought he was a genius it was for inventing bus. It was lift. Oh no. No. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. lift. That time Lyft, Lyft said, thought of the bus. Yeah, Lyft said, well what if we took for to cut down on on uh um CO2 emissions. What if we made designated stops at scheduled times that people could know about, and we made larger cars go place to place to those stops? And, and what like, if they took you to school? Yeah, like, and it was like, that's a fucking bus. <laughs> God, it's just so, they're so far up their own ass. They are. The expropriation and eviction of a part of the agricultural population not only set free for industrial capitals, the workers their means of subsistence, and the materials of their labor, it also created the home market. And the home market is such an important concept for capitalism because mm-hmm. what it is, and it took me, this, I did not understand this until the second time I went through it. Um, but, and, and David, correct me if I'm wrong. So the way, the home market is essentially, we have this group of people that used to make stuff for their own. We spread them out over these small things. They were doing it for themselves. They survived. Mm-hmm. What if we took all of that from them mm-hmm. and then made them buy it back from us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and made it it's it's fast food instead of cooking. It's it's everything. Yeah. It's just it, it's it's, in, it's expropriating people from what people have always done. And and we're going to get to there, but if you can't see the direct connection to colonialism coming up and imperialism coming up. Oh yes. Come on, guys. <laughs> In fact, the events that transformed the small peasants into wage laborers and their means of subsistence and of labor into material elements of capital created at the same time a home market for capital. Formerly, the peasant family produced means of subsistence and raw materials, which they themselves, for the most part, consumed. These raw materials and means of subsistence have now become commodities. The now you can't think of how do I get clothes without thinking of how do I buy them. Now you can't think of how do we get a dresser without thinking of where do I buy. You don't think of like making dressers or, or you know, I mean, we and we say cooking food. People do cook some, but a lot of people don't have time to cook. But people no. don't really understand like preparing food based on resource. That's what knowing how even to cook then, is. how it's many not of the following food, when you even if you're a person that cooks for yourself, how much of that stuff is an ingredient that would not that has to have been rendered eighteen different times before it gets to you. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you're out there and, and maybe some people have their own group, but it's not like you yeah. farm all your own food and then you figured out techniques to preserve it and then you figured out timing up certain meals on times of year and fi- figuring out preparing around your ingredients rather than picking ingredients around you want what you want to prepare. And you haven't figured out how to make whatever ingredients are in front of you cook together and work best and taste best with seasoning and texture. You pick a seasoning, a t- flavor and texture you want, and you just buy it all out 
and and you just start putting it together. You know, it takes the things people do as individuals or even communities. Because again, you know, the, the nuclear family, the home market was necessary to create the nuclear family, yep. and the nuclear family is necessary, and that's why capital is. Oh my God! They defend. You're gonna make the, the destroy the, the concept of the nuclear family. They love the nuclear family because it keeps the home market reproducing itself more than anything. Yep. You know. Um, I'm sure millennials just, will find a way to kill that sh- soon. Sure. <laughs> and then they'll like, ra- oh, littles are ruining the nuclear family and the Economist. Uh, but anyway, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is these used to be communities, and the communities would handle it. And there were certain people that would take up the cooking when when the other people couldn't there was people that that you know knew taught other people how to cook you know it was passed down from generation to generation from community elders how you pickle things that's why you know pickling was was huge you know all these other preservative methods. we don't think of any of that because it, it's just been yeah jerky i mean there's a reason these foods weren't just like fun interesting ways to to make stuff it was how you preserve stuff so it didn't go to shit that's why spices were so so valuable at the beginning of colonialism and right before it with feudal trade you know i mean it's 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 incredible that now now we just think of, oh, what, what texture and flavor do we want? Okay, is that available? Can I afford it out of my little means of subsistence thing? Because we as a class just produce it for the capitalists to sell. Don't think of it as anything but a commodity. And then when we want it, we buy it back. And then when it's not as healthy or we don't know how to cook or, or we don't have any time, we, we just bitch about it and we have no solution because it's been, the solution's been robbed away from us. Yeah. And then you wonder why, you know, we're, we're poor and poor and poor and yet fatter and fatter and fatter and yet we don't know how to cook and, and the food doesn't taste that great and we're turning to this Guy Fieri style, like, oh, let's put eight types of gravy oh. on a cheeseburger because we don't know any other way to understand eating food. Chapter 31, guys, we're, we're almost there, I promise. We're coming. We're coming. <laughs> we're coming for it. But it's getting good. It, it never stops. This is a this is a marathon of, of really important content, these last couple chapters. Yes. The genesis of the industrial capitalist did not proceed in such a gradual way as that of the farmer. Doubtless, many small guild masters and a still greater number of independent small artisans or even wage laborers transform themselves into small capitalists and by gradually extending their exploitation of wage labor and the corresponding accumulation into capitalists without any qualification. But the Middle Ages handed us down two distinct forms of capital, which ripened in the most varied economic formations of society and which before the era of the capitalist mode of production nevertheless functioned as capital. Usurer's capital and merchant's capital. Mm-hmm. Oh, We've been over those. We've been over these. <laughs> Holy shit. And again, these are elements of capital that up until this point, Marx really hasn't even let into the system. He, When no. he built the rule, when we were playing by the rules, we didn't even consider usurer's capital because they would play by your fun little rules. It wasn't there. Yeah. He's going to care about that in, in volume two that we're not getting into. Cause it's and just, volume three. And cause, yeah, because, I mean, he's just worried about, like, He's assuming the cycle in this yeah. one, and he's assuming it because obviously the cycle happens. Yeah. But he's not assuming like the paces and the breaks and the, the slowdowns and the crises. Chapter or volume two is about the crises themselves, and volume three is about the, the merchant stuff. And so the merchant capital becomes more important there. Unless you just again really want to know how this stuff works to be the capital expert, this is the only one that you really need for for theory. Correct. Quote time at present. All the wealth of society goes first into the possession of the capitalist. 
He pays the landowner his rent, the laborer his wages, the tax and tithe gatherer their claims, and keeps a large, indeed the largest, and a continually augmenting share of the annual produce of labor for himself. The capitalist may now be said to be the first owner of all the wealth of the community. Though no law conferred on him the rights to this property, this change has been affected by the taking of interest on capital. And it is not a little curious that all the lawgivers of Europe endeavored to prevent this by statuses, vis-a-vis statutes against usury. The power of the capitalist over all other wealth of the country is a complete change in the right of property. And by what law or series of laws was it affected? Rabble, rabble, rabble. By the way, guys, that was not Marx right there. That was Thomas Hodgkin. Yeah. Um, and, was, and remember, we've talked about this, too. You know, mm-hmm. feudal society was very, very, very Catholic. And the Catholic Church, usury was illegal. Yeah. You know, and even even just to avoid usury, you know, and, and so all of a sudden you get this change in capital where it's just these rich people are doing the usury because they benefit off it. And now usury is, you know, making money. And now all of a sudden all this power has this usury. It's It's got to be made legal. Yeah. You know, they're, they're starting to, to circumvent the power of the church and give it to their own ruling class. But even when you talk about legal, and I'm going to read this sentence again because it, it feeds the next one so importantly. The power of the capitalist over all the wealth of the country is a complete change in the right of property. Completely change, They completely alter the right of property. By what law or series of laws was it even affected? The author should have reminded himself that revolutions are not made with laws. Kind of an important sentence there, guys. Yeah. Revolution is not going to come because you go to the ballot box and vote for it. They took it without laws. It will be taken back without laws. Oh, and again, you know, and back to what I was saying, because I, I don't want to th- make this sound like it was in conflict with Marx. The usury becoming legal was because it was already happening. Exactly. <laughs> like no. the law was a reaction. Exactly. And that's what they said. Again, the revolution happened not because of, uh, uh, you, you elected a guy who said, oh, well, usury should be legal. It happened and they justified it. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the indigenous population of that continent, the beginnings of the conquest and plunder of India, the conversion of Africa into a preserve for the commercial hunting of blackskins, are all the things which characterize the dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief moments of primitive accumulation. Hard on their heels follows the commercial war of the European nations, which has the globe as its battlefield. It begins with the revolt of the Netherlands from Spain, assumes gigantic dimensions in England's anti-Jacobin war, and is still going on in the shape of the opium wars against China. You could add about 18 more commas and add every other freaking capitalist conflict over the last 150 years yeah. or so, but Just 18 you get commas. the picture. Uh, you know. <laughs> the different moments of primitive accumulation can be assigned in particular to Spain, Portugal, Holland, France, and England in a more or less chronological order. Again, throw another comma on there, at America. These different moments are systematically combined together at the end of the 17th century in England. The combination embraces the colonies, the national debt, the modern tax system, and the system of production. These methods depend in part on brute force. For instance, the colonial system. Don't you dare think that stopped happening. But they all employ the power of the state, the concentrated and organized force of society to hasten, as in a hothouse, the process of transformation of the feudal mode of production into the capitalist mode, and to shorten the transition. Force is the midwife of every old society which is pregnant with a new one. It is itself an economic power. For all the libertarian people that say that if you got rid of the government, things would be better, 
Government is a reaction. It is not the creator of that force. It is a reaction to things that are already happening. Yes, and 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 two things I want to really highlight. Please. One, one again, again. I you know this is Marx alluding to something, and this is why I, I felt I could say it so concretely, but also because I, I listen to other people, and I'm sure a lot of these other people brought it up from their own experiences. Uh, I'm sure some of these other people probably get it from certain theorists too, and, and we really want to get into reading like Fanon at some point in mm-hmm. here. So I'm sure what I'm saying is not like deep or revolutionary, but when I talked about colonialism, it, 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 capitalism is the whole base, and it also isn't because capitalism is the base, but also colonialism is capitalism is the base. And, and we cannot, you know, we, we can't assume that, like, white supremacy isn't capitalism, capitalism isn't white supremacy, and that you can get rid of capitalism without getting rid of white supremacy or vice versa. They, they can't do it. And one's not the superstructure of the other. They're, they're the base. And, and this paragraph that just happened makes that very clear. You know, colonialism bore that. Okay. Um, but I also really want to highlight that last sentence, too. Uh, and again, you know, we've talked about authoritarian, and we'll get to angles on, on authoritarianism, but this is very, very clear. Force is the midwife, uh, and midwife being, uh, they, were the, they were the ones that delivered babies. I mean, they were just midwives before there were pregnancy centers and, and hospitals. Um, there, was, there was just midwives. So. Force is the catalyst. Yeah, force is the catalyst. Force is the midwife of every old society pregnant with a new one. Force is the thing that takes somewhat, something ready to happen and makes it happen, okay? That's that's what it is, okay? The, the you know every every society with a full tank of gas forces the key that turns in the pushing of the pedal, okay? You know, force is is what carries this through. Yep. And that does not necessarily mean violence, although it no, although that's meant violence the first time they did this. Yeah, and, and again, you know, I mean, violence is the most effective means mm-hmm. of force, and the other means are is still a threat of violence. You yep. know, is a big deal. And, and again, you know, we maybe should expand what violence means, but you don't. Ha- it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be bloody. No, 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 but no. But no, no. it doesn't work without the threat yeah, of bloody. Yeah, but it's, gonna, it's yeah, they gotta believe it will be bloody. They gotta believe it will be. Yeah, credible threat. The English East India Company, as is well known, received apart from the political control of India, the exclusive monopoly of the tea trade, as well as of the Chinese trade in general and the transport of goods to and from Europe. I'm sure they earned that through their hard work. That's an editorializing. <laughs> but the coasting trade around India and in between the islands, as well as the inter- internal trade of India, was the monopoly of the higher officials of the company. So monopolies within monopolies, it's fun. The monopolies of salt, opium, betel, and other commodities were inexhaustible mines of wealth. The officials themselves fixed the price and plundered the unfortunate Hindus at will. The governor general took part in the private traffic. His favorites received contracts under conditions whereby they, cleverer than the alchemists, made gold out of nothing. Great fortunes sprang up like mushrooms in a day, and primitive accumulation proceeded without the advance of even a shilling. There was no risk. There was no no endeavor. There was no nothing. They stole it or were given it through nepotism. I really like that Marx, cleverer than the alchemist, make gold out of nothing. Yeah. Because gold essentially is, is a rare and, and useful product. We talked about that before. It's, it has a use value and it has to have labor to, to be mined and that's why mm-hmm. it has value. So gold really is worthless except the worth that, that is socially given. But these guys, they made actual work. They made labor. They made they made value. They made centralization. They did 
what what trying to make gold does. That that analogy works so much more than Marx even intended. It is a brilliant and is, analogy, and it is backhanded because they didn't make it. Oh yeah, out of no, nothing. No, no. This is the this is the no, Columbus I mean, it's, discovered it's, America. Upgrading. They robbed it. They took something oh, yeah. that already had value. They stole it. They appropriated it. They, and they said, "This is mine now." Oh sure, but again, you know, I mean, also they're stealing labor. They're stealing the, the resources. Clever use they of flags. Yeah, um, but they they. It was sarcasm, but it's still even no, sarcastically, it it's better than Marx intended. Next, uh, next line. Uh, uh, hard, hard, hard trigger warning for anybody, uh, uh, yeah. it, especially indigenous people, uh, anyone, violence in general. Uh, feel free to skip forward roughly a minute or so or a couple minutes. I will not fault you at all. Um, yeah. The treatment of the indigenous population was, of course, at its most frightful in plantation colonies set up exclusively for the export trade, such as the West Indies and in rich and well-populated countries such as Mexico and India that were given over to plunder. But even in the colonies properly so-called, the American colonies, the Christian character of primitive accumulation was not belied. In 1703, those sober exponents of Protestantism, the Puritans of New England, by decrees of their assembly, set a premium of 40 pounds on every Indian scalp and every captured redskin. I am reading that verbatim. I am not... uh. In 1720, a premium of 100 pounds was set on every scalp. In 1744, after Massachusetts Bay had proclaimed a certain tribe as rebels, the following prices were laid down. For a male scalp of 12 years and upwards, 100 pounds in new currency. For a male prisoner, 105. For women and children, 50 pounds. For the scalps of women and children, 50 pounds. Some decades later, the colonial system took its revenge on the descendants of the pious pilgrim fathers who had grown seditious in the meantime. At English instigation and for English money, they were tomahawked by the Redskins. The British Parliament proclaimed bloodhounds and scalping as the means that God and nature had given into its hand. Guys, it it just is bad. Yeah. It's just bad. It's always been bad. Yeah. You can code it in whatever. These are your founding fathers. These are the people that you send your kids to make hand turkeys at in their in their kindergarten classes. And the fact that that's the story that gets told, and and trust me, they they learn who the president is now and the vice president is now, which is really fun and gross, and who George Washington is and what the stars and the stripes represent. Like they learn all that shit in preschool. That that shit is drilled in as some great just American thing. And these these are what those things represent. This is this was the reality of of. What of what happened of how you got there? This and is what you, you celebrated Thanksgiving. If you don't acknowledge that, if you don't confront that, and you just pass it under, again, we go back to the 1300s. How many generations do you get to keep saying, "Well, no, it wasn't me. It was no." It's always happened. It's continued it's, to happen. It never stopped. And if you don't confront that, we've the, got problems. The, again, I mean, obviously, you know, and black people are, are, are colonized people too. They're not just they're not just immigrants. Uh, but also indigenous people. The only people that, that get killed by police at a higher rate than black people are, are indigenous, indigenous people. people. Uh, imprisonment rates are insane for indigenous people, including Hawaii. So, did, did we go? We haven't gone over the story of Hawaii. I I don't here, know if we, we have. Um, okay, and then maybe sometime we'll go into it in more. With the rise of national debt making, 
lack of faith in the national debt takes the place of the sin against the Holy Ghost for which there is no forgiveness. You must trust public debt. It is critical because public debt becomes one of the most powerful levers of primitive accumulation. As with the stroke of an enchanter's wand, it endows unproductive money with the power of creation and thus turns it into capital without forcing it to expose itself to any of the troubles and risks inseparable from its employment in industry or even in usury. The state's creditors actually give nothing away, for the sum lent is transformed into public bonds, easily negotiable, which go on functioning in their hands just as much as hard cash would. But furthermore, and quite apart from the class of ideal rentiers thus created, the improvised wealth of the financier who plays the role of middleman between the government and the nation, and the tax farmers, merchants, and private manufacturers for whom a good part of every national loan performs the service of a capital fallen from heaven. Apart from all of these people, the national debt has given rise to joint stock companies, to dealing in negotiable effects of all kinds, and to speculation. In a word, it has given rise to the stock exchange gambling and to the modern bankocracy. If you took that out and just replaced it with everything from 2008, it is the exact same thing. And this is an important concept because, I mean, it, I, most people I don't think care about the deficit anymore. I think they've become numb to it. Thankfully. I think you've but. been in the bubble for too long. I think you'd be shocked at if the, the amount of people that desperately yeah. think that that is a real thing and that it matters. Yeah, it, it it's not. <laughs> No, it's not. It's, it's absolutely not. It's fucking bullshit. And the quicker you just say it's bullshit, the better. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just a tool for the rich to get richer, to to, to just play around money games and, and accumulate. That's all it is. And it's, no, it's no, a, no, it's, it's also, a, it's, don't take away its other factor. It is the greatest tool that the conservative parties and, and reactionary forces have to curtail any liberal spending whenever they want to. Yeah. Any progressive spending plans are always, uh, but the deficit, which any, never any, seems to any apply of those, to... Because, again, governments just resolve conflicts. Any of those conflict revolutions that aren't just straight-up violent oppression, that are giving you some kind of concession so that you don't rise up and cut cut all the capitalists' throats, those those are the ones that got to be cut for the national debt. But, yeah. I mean, we can always expand the military. Budget. Yeah, no, always no, no. That's, that would, no, there's no question. No one ever asks, how am I going to pay for this coup in Venezuela? It's always, yeah, how and, are you going to pay and, for And, of course, they love, they love the, the cop reform. And, you know, if you're not doing police abolition, you're not doing shit. Because they love the cop reform. Or we just need more body cameras. Okay, well, we'll give the quote-unquote earmark for body cameras funding expansions to all these police departments. Oh, how do those wind up with just regular police funds so they get bigger and shoot more people? Air procedure, people. everybody! Yeah, whatever. You know, it's... And, and again, that stuff goes up, but the social services go down. Yep. Yeah, it's it's just garbage. It's, it's garbage. It's propaganda. a, tool, it's it's a tool to take the things you need for the things they want. Yeah. At their birth... The great banks, decorated with national titles, were only associations of private speculators who placed themselves by the side of governments, and thanks to the privileges they received, were in a position to advance money to those governments. Hence, the accumulation of the national debt has no more infallible measure than the successive rise in the stock of these banks, whose full development dates from the founding of the Bank of England in 1694. The Bank of England began by lending its money to the government at 8%. At the same time, it was empowered by Parliament to coin money out of the same capital. By lending it a second time to the public in the form of banknotes, it was allowed to use these notes for discounting bills, making advances on commodities, and buying the precious metals. It was not long before this credit money, created by the bank itself, became the coin in which the latter made its loans to the state and paid, on behalf of the state, the interest on the public debt. 
It was not enough that the bank gave with one hand and took with the other. It remained, even while receiving money, the eternal creditor of the nation down to the last penny advanced. Gradually, it became the inevitable receptacle of the metallic horde of the country and the center of gravity for all commercial credit. Along with the national debt, there arose an international credit system, which often conceals one of the sources of primitive accumulation in this or that people. Thus, the villainies of the Venetian system of robbery formed one of the secret foundations of Holland's wealth and capital, for Venice in her years of decadence lent large sums of money to Holland. There's a similar relationship between Holland and England. By the beginning of the 18th century, Holland's manufacturers had been far outstripped. It had ceased to be the nation predominant in commerce and industry. One of its main lines of business, therefore, from 1701 to 1776, was the lending of enormous amounts of capital to its great rival, England. The same goes on today between England and the United States. A great deal of capital, which appears today in the United States without any birth certificate, was yesterday in England the capitalized blood of children. Hey, it's weird how guys that are supposed to be giant enemies will still lend giant sums of money to each other. It's almost as if it doesn't countries and bullshit lines in the sand don't really matter and it's all fucking class. Yeah. Uh, By the way, too, because a lot of this has been very updated by some world wars and things, uh, the IMF and the World Bank based out of the United States uh, very much play this role and they play this role in a very overtly imperialist way. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hey, your country can have this this little loan for your infrastructure that, that's being destroyed because all these capitalists came in with their bombs and guns and and companies that want to privatize your water and completely you know undercut your entire economy and existence will help you rebuild the infrastructure. Uh, but here's the deal: you don't get to run the economy your your socialist way that actually gives your people housing and food. No, uh, you have to be liberal this this and this way and pay these ridiculous loans back and in interest rates that you can never pay back. And we're going to give you just enough. That there, you know, if the liberalism is bad enough in your economy, you'll you'll never really take off. Uh, so now, basically, your country's owned by the IMF or World Bank. Uh, this is why, again, you know, we don't have to paint China as some perfect picture. But th- what they're doing is not imperialism no. when they're loaning to Africa. What did they just write off? Uh, the capitals are trying to to make it sound like like something nefarious, but it was some country they just wrote off like half the debt. They just wrote it off because the country was having trouble paying it back. And China was like, you know, this was really actually to let you get your infrastructure going. Um, but uh, so what you're saying is China is, is, is kine- good. Is Keynesian economic their way into uh... to the world they, because they can't just they can't just be pure communist worldwide. These are all sovereign countries, yeah. but but they're doing the, you know, the best thing they can. And it's undercutting the IMF and World Bank. So now all of a sudden, you know, now we got a problem. Yeah. And, and so, and of course. You know, we've said before that imperialism doesn't really ride on right-wingers. They'll they'll be happy to fucking bomb anyone you tell them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really ride on centrists because within the confines of American borders, you know, they, they don't really, like, want to help indigenous people, but they love to steal the language. Maybe, like, one out of every hundred policies they are actually opposed to Republicans. There's some difference in there in language, even if it's not super material. But you go outside the borders, they're just right-wingers. They'll fucking bomb anybody, too. It's the quote-unquote left. Anyone who's left that is not, like, disciplined anti-imperialist socialist that they can get away from this, you know, they, they don't want them to just go and go, Icky, I'm tired of America's wars and I don't really like the capitalism. Why do I want this? They want them to go, oh, my God, humanitarian crisis. So they steal 
socialist language and appeal to this this imperialist left that'll buy anything. Oh my God, Maduro's starving his poor. We need to do this. We need to save them. It's for the Venezuelan people. And oh my God, you know, the the, the FSA are just these these Kurds that just want their sovereignty and want their freedom from the evil Assad. That's That's what they need to have enough support to do these wars. And so right now, they're stealing the language of imperialism to, and, and, and the language of the anti-Islamophobia movement in America after seeing the, the widespread Islamophobia, um, you know, from the Middle Eastern wars, uh, to make up shit about Uyghur Muslims and to say that China is imperializing Africa. <laughs> and none of the Chinese loans are doing anything imperializing. Uh, and they're like, what, one one hundredth of what the World Bank and IMF are giving these very same countries. You know, so I'm not going to say China's foreign policy is perfect. Some of these loans are going to the Philippines where Duterte is, is an evil piece of shit fighting against Maoist. And, you know, again, the history of like the 79 Afghan war and stuff like that. But nothing in China's current pol- foreign policy is explicit imperialism. That's ridiculous. And we need to support China, especially on its foreign policy right now. And these African loans are a very good thing that are actually helping Africa. And that's why it scares the U.S. establishment so much, and that's why they're calling China. They're they're making Russia their super target. But if you hear them stop talking in fanaticism, because there's no Chinese stolen election thing now, there's just the Chinese quote unquote trade war stuff. They're still saying a lot about China. They're more scared of China than anyone, if you ask them point blank. And all of the language of getting this buy-in left is what we'll call them. The, the soak Dems that'll buy in for any imperialist project uh, or the supposedly anti-imperialist Maoists or whatever. They'll buy in for any, or, or anarchists or whatever. They'll buy in for any imperialist project. The reason they're getting them to buy into China is because China is a threat to their imperialism through the IMF and the World Bank. Exactly what this chapter is about is how imperialism manifests. And that jumps us to almost the very end of this chapter. To unleash the eternal natural laws of the capitalist mode of production, to complete the process of separation between the workers and the conditions of their labor, to transform at one pole the social means of production and subsistence into capital, and at the opposite pole the mass of the population into wage laborers, into the free laboring poor, that artificial product of modern history. If money, according to Augier, comes into the world with a congenital blood stain on one cheek, capital comes dripping from head to toe from every pore with blood and dirt. That, ladies and gentlemen, takes us <laughs> to chapter 32. And yes. David, if you're okay with it, I would... Chapter 32 is, is it functionally the end of capital. There is a chapter 33. It is a critically important chapter. I think functionally, and I'll, I will. We'll definitely do a different we will, episode. We're gonna, it's going to be a different episode, and we're going to go into dis, into why it exists and why it's tacked on. Chapter thirty-two is Marx's climax. It is the yeah. it is the, the the emotional hammering home of this argument. Um, and so, unless something critically needs to be explained, you guys have all made it this far through the thing. I'm going to kind of let Marx talk for the rest of this, so mm-hmm. uh, we're going to go and and, mm-hmm. and see how we can string this together. So, from where I start... It's only one page. Just read it. No, it's only one page. One page and a half. Uh, from that moment, new forces and new passions spring up in the bosom of a society. Forces and passions which feel themselves to be fettered by that society. It has to be annihilated. It is annihilated. It's annihilation. 
the transformation of the individualized and scattered means of production into socially concentrated means of production. The transformation, therefore, of the dwarf-like property of the many into the giant property of the few. The expropriation of the great mass of people from the soil, from the means of subsistence, and from the instruments of labor. This terrible and arduously accomplished expropriation of the mass of the people forms the prehistory of capital. It comprises a whole series of forcible methods, and we have only passed in review those that have been epoch-making as methods of the primitive accumulation of capital. The expropriation of the direct producers was accomplished by the means of the most merciless barbarism and under the stimulus of the most infamous, the most sordid, the most petty, and the most odious of passions. Private property, which is personally earned, i.e., which is based, as it were, on the fusing together of the isolated, independent, working individual with the conditions of his labor, is supplanted by capitalist private property, which rests on the exploitation of an alien but formerly free labor. As soon as this metamorphosis has sufficiently decomposed the old society through its depth and breadth, as soon as the workers have been turned into proletarians and their means of labor into capital, as soon as the capitalist mode of production stands on its own feet, the further socialization of labor and the further transformation of the soil and other means of production into socially exploited and therefore communal means of production takes on a new form. What is now to be expropriated is not the self-employed worker, but the capitalist who exploits a large number of workers. This expropriation is accomplished through the action of the imminent laws of capitalist production itself, through the centralization of capitals. One capitalist always strikes down many others. Hand in hand with, his central, with this centralization or this expropriation of many capitalists by a few, other developments take place on an ever-increasing scale, such as the growth of the cooperative form of the labor process, the conscious technical application of science, the planned exploitation of the soil, the transformation of the means of labor into forms in which they can only be used in common, the economizing of all means of production by their use as the means of production of the combined socialized labor, the entanglement of all peoples in the net of the world market, and with this, the growth of the international character of the capitalist regime. Along with the constant decree, decrease in the number of capitalist magnates who usurp and monopolize all the advantage of this process of transformation, the mass of misery, oppression, slavery, degradation, and exploitation grows. But with this, there are also grows the revolt of the working class, a class constantly increasing in numbers and trained united, and organized by the very mechanism of the capitalist process of production. The monopoly of capital becomes a fetter upon the mode of production which has flourished alongside and under it. The centralization of the means of production and the socialization of labor reach a point at which they become incompatible with the capitalist entanglement. This entanglement is burst asunder. The knell of capitalist private property sounds the expropriators are expropriated. The capitalist mode of appropriation, which springs from the capitalist mode of production, produces capitalist private property. This is the first negation of individual private property as founded on the labor of its proprietor. But capitalist production begets with the inexorability of a natural process its own negation. 
This is the negation of the negation. It does not reestablish private property, but it does indeed establish individual property on the basis of the achievement of the capitalist era, namely cooperation and the possession in common of the land and the means of production produced by labor itself. The transformation of scattered private property resting on the personal labor of the individuals themselves into capitalist private property is naturally an incomparably more protracted, violent, and difficult process than the transformation of capitalist private property, which in fact already rests on the carrying on of production by society into social property. In the former case, it was a matter of the expropriation of the mass of the people by a few usurpers. In this case, we have the expropriation of a few usurpers by the mass of the people. That is essentially the, the, the what the hell is coming yeah. of capital. That is... Here we go. That, and that is why, in my, in, my, in my very, very humble and not as, as nearly where I want to be opinion, God damn it, that's where you should end the book, Carl. <laughs> God damn, Carl. Because that, if that does not get... That's the hope. This whole yeah. book has been beating you down and convincing you why the system is broken. And that right there, is it, is it a, a well-thought-out, completely complex system of government? No. But it shows the internal contradiction of what this is and what it's going to lead to. Mm-hmm. And that is the mass of people that have been taken advantage of rising back up and taking back what was taken before. And, and very classic Marx, the capitalists are preparing you with the very tools that will be their downfall. In this case... The tools are socialization via labor. I'm sitting here across from Nathan in the pod cave. I met Nathan because I worked with him. This is how we're going to meet each other and socialize and exchange. And eventually we're going to realize that we have one thing in common. That these shitheads are running our lives. And they don't deserve to be. And we already know how to make stuff. We already know how to we already know how to share stuff. We already know how to take specific roles. We already know how to be authority uh, for guided situations. We already know how to take authority uh, when we need to take direction to reduce things. Uh, we know how to do all of these things that where we can make a cooperative economy. And all we need is the will to do it because there's a lot fucking more of us. The other thing they've made is a lot of us. Yep. Uh, whether it's just, you know, the, the reproduction in the very literal scientific sense of needing that to expand the economies uh, or, you know, the uh, reproduction of the working class from throwing people out of the ruling class. Uh, there's a lot of us. I think I think the, the, the only time I will directly directly quote song lyrics on the show and I apologize but it is it is prescient I, I think it is it is definitely from disparity of design by rising Us, but it is it, if there is a god you better pray that the sweeping giant never wakes because dear god should we tell them about your shirt if oh no I'm wearing it I I, I <laughs> my, my my brother and, and comrade in arms is, is tatted up with rising and stuff I, I worship at their altar they are they are my 
And it's so much nicer now that I'm actually a leftist because, God damn it, it's just so much anger and vitriol in the right direction. Good. Listen to Rise Against. God damn it. I'm Rage probably... Against the Machine's a lot more fun now, too. Yeah, Rage Against the Machine's a lot more fun, but God, Rise is oh, it's just so good. God yeah. damn it. I'm going to probably edit Rise songs into this. Tim, don't sue me. Um, no, it is. It's the second we re- I mean, it's so, and there's so many, it's so funny. There's so many pieces of blatant capitalist media that, that show this but when everyone realizes how many fucking more of us there are it, it's a bug's life dude it's a bug's life yeah <laughs> the second we realize that we outnumber them a hundred to one th- this shit all stops yeah there is no need for this but the and then the only problem is and they, they love atomizing and that's why they do if you realize as an individual good whatever they don't care. No. It's when we realize it as a class. Everybody. And we, we get to inverse uh, the great quote of Kwame Ture. Uh, Kwame Ture is a quote about white supremacy. Uh, he And he, he didn't mean this in a rallying cry for power. He meant this in, to clarify what racism is. Because, you know, uh, there's people that, that worry about prejudice. And it's sometimes hard to explain to people that racism is about power dynamics. Not just about not liking someone because they're different. The not liking someone because they're different, if they're in the oppressed class, just furthers that. And thus is a component of racism that's very bad that you should stand against and stop. But it's not what racism is. That's prejudice. Uh, Kwame Turi says that if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If a white man wants has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. That's his quote. Well, he meant that in, in a realization of what racism is way, but we can also take that and flip it to its inverse. Okay? If a proletarian wants us to realize that we outnumber the shit out of the capitalists, that's the proletarian's problem. But if the proletariat <laughs> realizes that we outnumber the capitalists, that's, that's the capitalist problem. <laughs> and it's, it's, Mark said it, it, and it was true then, and it's gotten nothing but truer over time. They are outnumbered. The mass of people outnumber them. And we have, they, hey, he gave, if anything, he gave probably his most nice, nicest thing he said about capitalism in these, these sections. Yeah. In that it created everything. It created what we need, but it created the means of its own destruction and that it is no longer necessary. It has served its miserable, awful, horrible, don't apologize for it, don't claim it advanced anything. It was miserable every step of the way. It served its damn purpose. Let's get it the fuck out. And that is a common that is a common quote, again I will say from Marx is is he will come a a lot of Marx he will mention. uh, Capitalists will create the tools of their own downfall. Here you're seeing what he means by that. It's not open-ended anymore. Nope. There is the definition. There it is. And it's, again, did, did, did we get a roadmap with a nice little step-by-step paint-by-numbers guide to how the fuck we were going to do this? No. But, uh, but thankfully, that's what, uh, that's what the rest, here for. That's what, that's what the rest <laughs> of this podcast will be for. Again, this yeah. is not the end of capital. As much as I think emotionally no. this should be the end of capital, there's a very <laughs> important addendum that will get its own goddamn episode, and that's chapter 33, Yes, which yes. is the modern theory of colonization, and that we will get into next week because, David, I don't know about you, I am emotionally drained from that. All right. Holy hell, guys. Okay. Thank you for hanging with us. Yes. Uh, this was a wonderful 
wonderful reading of a wonderful, wonderful book. We hope you take it to heart, understand a lot more from it, and it should be a launching pad for a lot more action, organizing, and learning by you, uh, including a lot of reading yourself. And we will do more episodes on more works. Oh, yeah. Uh, including the last chapter of this one. Yeah, I'm about to say, we're not done yet. It feels like it should be seen. Right? Everything about that feels like we should be done. <laughs> Why the hell, Marks? God damn it. Uh, I think that's actually on Angle's editing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Until, until next time. Until next time. Bye.